0: minorly allergic to the phrase lifestyle business i think just because <laughs> of where like the the general idea behind it and like what people think of as a lifestyle business you know something entirely hands off that just prints them money fun fact those don't exist so <laughs>
1: Hey, what's up everybody? Welcome to Responsibly Reckless, the show where we talk about how to thrive in uncertainty and live life without regret. Advice is contextual and what works for one person may not work for you. So we'll talk to top performers and dig into why they make the decisions they do, giving you the tools you need to pick the right advice for your unique situation so that you can build your version of a successful life, not somebody else's. Today's guest is Jonathan Lyman. Jonathan is the founder of a coffee business, has a candle business, is a software developer at Heroku, blogs in his free time, and he's a father. In today's episode, we talk to Jonathan about his different businesses, his thoughts on minimizing risk and leveraging existing knowledge, his thoughts on the pros and cons of running a business versus working for someone else common misconceptions about lifestyle businesses, how to find the right life partner and have an amazing relationship, as well as a bunch of other topics. This episode touches on a wide range of areas, so listen in, enjoy, and feel free to hop around to whichever topics pique your interest most. Oh, yeah. Just like the Who- sugar. Let's just admit it. Yeah. Whoever came up with the marketing aspect of Pumpkin Spice was a genius, man. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> And uh, actually funny, like related to Pumpkin Spice and Fall, right now I know that this weekend is actually like Halloween weekend, so had a a late night with my friends last night and just having a little bit of coffee now to help with our podcast. And related to coffee, I know that you actually have your own coffee business that you've been Mm -hmm. running, uh, Seaplane Coffee, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct, yeah. Uh, I'd love to like hear a little bit about that. I know that coffee and caffeine runs the world. So it's a, a super interesting like business to run. And I guess you can get high on your own supply,
0: quote unquote. You can, especially when you only charge yourself cost for such supply. <laughs> uh, great segue, by the way. I'm impressed as a, as a former podcast host. I liked how you connect all that together. I, I had a feeling the coffee was going to come up first on the topic of pumpkin spice there. Uh, I like that, that bridge you drew. Well they, done, 10 out of 10. Yeah. <laughs> so in uh, in 2020, uh, well, actually technically, I, started, I came up with the idea originally like Christmas of 2019, like right before the pandemic. And I was like, yeah, you know, it sounds like something I could probably try to do, but didn't really get off the ground until uh, June, July, 2020 uh, in the height of the pandemic. Um, I started a coffee business on the internet. And there's no shortages. There's no shortage of those. Let me tell you. Um, but you know, I didn't really care, frankly. Like I didn't. I honestly didn't do a whole hell of a lot of market research <laughs> when I started this. I just kind of did it just because it. It sounded interesting. It was something you know. I like coffee. I like selling things on the internet. As you'll probably come to learn, I got I got a whole book of notes here. Nice. Uh, you know, that's that's kind of my my go to. Uh, reason for when someone asks why I started uh, a various business, it's like, because I like selling stuff on the internet, right? So and you know, coffee felt like a relatively low startup cost idea in that, you know, I lived in an apartment at the time. And so naturally, I don't really have didn't really have space to roast myself, right? Do all the logistics myself. So I found I found a partner roaster here in the area that was willing to take on that burden for me, um, you know, and charge me per bag essentially, and that that took a huge amount of burden off getting things started off the ground, getting things off the ground, getting things started. Um, you, the cost of coffee roasting equipment at scale is stupid, just utterly disgusting, right? You know, if you are home roasting, it's not terrible. But at the scale that I felt I was going to need to offer any kind of expansion room, I, I just wasn't willing to spend that money. So having the partner was super helpful. And, you know, the guy that runs that show there, it's quite literally two people himself and I think his one of his kids. And that's it. thats the, That's their entire company, right? Being small like that, you know, I could more or less dictate the rules of engagement, Like, you know, he tells me the price, I tell him what I want. And he tells me if that's going to be a different price, you know, that that, that's it. You know, that's the whole story. No complicated contracts, no minimums, none of that stuff. Right. And he's close enough that I can, you know, if I need something from him or if I need to give him supplies of some kind, I can just drive it up there. You know, it's probably an hour away with traffic. So that makes, you know, even easier. Like there's just, there was just no reason to not go with him at that point. Um, I had looked at a couple other facilities and they were all more expensive and they all had really weird specific processes and you know, there were the rules were the rules, that kind of stuff. And I didn't feel like that was going to be super conducive to me kind of doing this fly by night, making it up as I go along. Right. So, um, if it's, if it's not clear, I didn't plan this too terribly long before I just sent it out on the world. Right. I picked out a bag, I made a label, picked the coffees and said, let's go just shove it out there, you know, and see what happens. Um, the first, first sales came from friends, coworkers, things like that kind of iron out the kinks and whatnot. And, you know, some of my current former coworkers are still customers to this day, which is wonderful. They had no obligation to continue being customers, but I appreciate that nevertheless, um, but one of the things I tried to do, and I regret, there are two things I regret in this business thus far. The first, coming back to the packaging and the labeling and stuff, I, I regret not spending the extra time and effort and money to come up with a truly unique package design. You know, mm. like you walk down the coffee aisle at your grocery store, they're all, they're all different, right? They all stand out in some way. When I started, I took the cheap route and I bought just a bunch of blank coffee bags and slapped labels on them, which is fine. That's entirely acceptable. But because I am the person that would never be happy with whatever I produced, I've changed the bag and label design three times now (laughs) in a little over two years. (laughs) Whereas if I had gone the more expensive route, because I would have had to spend a lot more money on a custom package i would be less likely to change it <laughs> you know because it would, it would force me to be okay with it for a lot longer um the i guess interoperability or modularity of the packaging let me change the bag and keep the label or change the label and keep the bag and things go left and right and tweaking this and that and you know and i and i've thrown away so many labels that i've you know, swapped out for other stuff now. Like it's just been a waste. So that's, I I regret that. I regret not spending what would have probably been maybe close to 10 grand and just buying all of the best packaging first, and then just being done with it and not having to think about it for a long time. So I've probably spent about 10 grand on packaging to date anyways. So here we are (sighs) on the flip side. I don't know if Like that, that wasn't ever something that occurred to me initially either. Like I didn't have the foresight to recognize that this would be problematic for me a year or two years down the road. So, you know, you can play both sides of that and I I try not to beat myself up over it. It is what it is. You know, I'm always a fan of iterating and improving as you go along and learning from that. So it's not a total, you know, total waste, but it is something I think about every time I order new labels or add a new coffee to the lineup, et cetera, et cetera. My second regret is advertising a, or marketing a internet centric coffee organization. It's a very Mm -hmm. fancy way of putting that to the local market. Mm -hmm. Um, Initially seaplane coffee went by the name of Kenmore coffee company. I lived in Kenmore, Washington. It made a lot of sense at the time, right? Live in Kenmore. I'm going to name it after the place I live. The problem is the market doesn't look at it that way. They look at it as it's Kenmore Coffee Company. Where are you located in Kenmore? It's immediately, <laughs> they line, they draw. Mm-hmm. And it's through no fault of their own, right? It makes sense. In hindsight, I would have never named it that. If I had known that is the connection that folks were going to make, um, I would have come up with something a lot more neutral, kind of like I did now. Seaplane Coffee still influenced by where, you know, where it was founded, you know, uh, Kenmore, Washington has a locally famous uh, seaplane, float plane, uh, harbor, airport, seaport, whatever you want to call it, right? Um, does all sorts of flights all over the uh, Pacific Northwest into Canada, stuff like that. It's pretty, pretty popular endeavor. So the, the concept of the seaplane as like a theme and a brand element is pretty common in the Kenmore area. So, you know, I I stuck with that instead, probably should have gone with it in the first place. You know, it's still, like I said, related to where it was founded, but also entirely neutral. And now the tagline is your local internet coffee roaster, kind of trying to play on the idea that, you know, it's the brand is not mass market by any stretch. I have no plans on it being so I don't, I don't want to get into coffee that much for that. If somebody wants to make it mass market, they can buy it off of me and go nuts. (laughs) Um, But at the same time, you know, it's available to anybody, right? I try to make it, I I try to make it as, as neutral across the country as possible. You know, we're not dedicated to the Pacific Northwest, you know, like some brands are right. Like you, you think of, Uh, Like REI is a pretty hardcore Northwest brand Patagonia. Like there's, they have themes, like just the way they are, they, they channel that, that natural energy, if you will, from where they're located. Right. I try not to do that too much beyond the, the basic branding and theming and whatnot. So yeah, two big regrets right off the top, the things I wish I did differently, but all in all. I don't know, it's been fun. Yeah, I've learned a lot more about coffee than I ever thought I would. Um, I still consume as much as I as I did before, which is good. Didn't get any worse. I mean, arguably it got cheaper because, like I said, at the top of this program, I uh, I, I charge myself cost more, more or less. It's the cost varies from time to time, and I don't want to do the math. So it's <laughs> cost ish. It's good enough.
1: Yeah, related to the the coffee business, I think those are two great lessons right out the get go. One thing I find is interesting is the challenge of balancing perfection with Mm -hmm. iterations over time, where you're saying you're a big fan of iterating as you go, but you kind of also wish that you were able to just redo things and had gone with the like the perfect packaging straight out of the boat. Do mm-hmm. you, what I'm wondering is, is how do you balance the act of perfectionism with the act of just kind of going and quickly iterating? Cause I feel like that can be a challenge and very contextual to the person as well as the situation.
0: Mm-hmm. I think for me anyways, if I, if I was able to take the thinking about how much time I've spent on iterating on the packaging, using that as an example, if I, if I could take that time back dozens of hours, right? I would either be able to spend that on something else entirely not related to the business, more free time for whatever, right? Or channel that into a different aspect of the business, you know, because I don't do, I don't do coffee full-time. I have a day job. So, you know, this is like a nights and weekends type of thing for me, right? So every hour is crucial thinking about all the time that I could get back, not, you know, spending, you know, redesigning every label, printing it, realizing something was wrong and printing, having it all reprinted again. That happened. Uh, one of my artwork files was visually correct, both on my screen and in the proofing process. But when it got printed, there was something catastrophically incorrect about it. Uh, no way to know that that was going to happen until all the <laughs> labels showed up and they looked like garbage. And it took weeks to get that fixed. And, you know. I could argue that none of that would have potentially happened if I had just, quote, done it right the first time, you know. At the same time, I'm painfully aware that, you know, what did they say, perfect is the enemy of good. Yeah. Um, though I would, you know, knowing myself well enough, even if I had taken that, should have done it both right the first time route, I probably would still have things I would critique about it. You know, like it's that that would not just magically go away if I had done it right the first time. Um, but like you know, like I said, because it would create a much higher barrier to doing something about it, I would I feel like I would have been able to convince myself that this is actually okay. This is fine. I do I wish it was different in some minute way? Maybe, sure. but I feel like that's going to be a problem for me anyways, no matter what I produce. I'm always going to be thinking about the next iteration of it. So. Yeah, Does that make think, yeah that makes sense yeah that
1: makes a lot of sense and i think it's interesting because it's easy to have twenty twenty hindsight where it's yeah. like now that i know what i know now i wish i could just go back and do it right the first time but yeah. you highlight a very good point which is that there are certain issues and mistakes you can't really know until you've mm-hmm. actually gone through it and i think that yeah. this is a good point for our listeners to recognize is that whatever you're trying or doing there are certain issues that you won't foresee until you actually try to tackle the challenge that you're facing. So don't try to wait till you figured out all the variables because you can't. Sometimes mm-hmm. you do just need to get started. And then through hard work and experience, you'll be able to know those lessons for next time. And this yeah. is a, a point about why Some people will start one business and then the next business they start, they'll start a related business and it goes a lot easier. If you were to follow this up with your next coffee business, for instance, you've already learned the lessons from this one. So Mm -hmm. anytime you can take existing experience or knowledge and apply it to something else, the better off you'll be. And I think that this is something people can try to keep in mind with businesses as well as with careers, for instance, like maybe I try to pick a tangential career So always try to leverage the knowledge and experience that you previously had.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I liked it. I like that. That's a very, very elegant way to put it. And yeah, if I did ever get into the coffee business in some other form or, quote, took it to the next level, whatever that is, right? Like, you know, there are things that I would have to change, but I am aware. I'm aware of all of those components at this point, right? Like, let's say, theoretically... I ended up going national and was put in a chain of some kind, right? You know, the 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 first biggest one that comes to mind is, you know, Kroger chain of grocery stores, you know, Mm -hmm. Kroger or uh, King Supers, I think if you're in the, uh, the Rockies or Fred Meyer out West, stuff like that, right? Like having that kind of national exposure would take everything to such an entirely new level that I would almost have to start over anyways, you know? So knowing that all of the trials and tribulations that I went through the first time I'm already aware of the the hurdles are going to come up along the way. So we can skip right to the good part at the end. And related to taking it to the next level, you bring up
1: another good point, which is that it's important to know what level you want to be at, the type of business you want to build. And yeah. starting from the beginning, because a lot of people think in their head, oh, I need this crazy, insane business. I need to be in stores around the globe. And it's like, wait a second, let's take a step back from what your goals are. There's nothing wrong with having just a lifestyle business or a business that I just do for fun or a business that you just want some side income and mm-hmm. being able to know yourself and know what you want to achieve and then work backwards. I think too yeah. many people kind of just like hastily jump in without knowing what the end is in mind. And that can kind of bite them in the butt.
0: Yeah, I saw that a lot, especially when you know my my side hustle of the day the, uh, the flavor of the day was uh, selling on Amazon. Mm. There were a lot of folks who were like, I hate my nine to five job and I want to have a lifestyle business. Like, I, I, small side tangent, I have, I'm have i minorly allergic to the phrase lifestyle business. I think just because <laughs> of where, like the, the general idea behind it and like what people think of as a lifestyle business, you know, something entirely hands off that just prints them money. Fun fact, those don't exist. <laughs> so, you know, when that comes up, there's, I always feel like there needs to be a bunch of asterisks add on to the end of it. Because it's like, at some point, you know, if you do it right and you are successful, your business will help you get the lifestyle you want. But the business itself is not a lifestyle business. It's going to take a lot of work to get to the point where you want the lifestyle that you want, right? Like that's, that's the part that I feel like gets left out a lot when you hear the topic come up of, creating a lifestyle business. It's like, how do I want to put this? If if all you want is a lifestyle business, you would have a better chance of betting on horses or putting money into the stock market (laughs) and and hoping you win. Right. Like that's, if, if you're looking for something that's not going to require a lot of work, any regular business, arguably across most categories, It's going to require probably more work than you're anticipating so just keep that in mind anyways back on topic uh what were we talking about no yeah i can't keep open parentheses (laughs) in my head like that no whatever was on my on topic at the moment is completely out of my head
1: no free flowing and just an additional point on that yeah anytime you hear the buzzwords of passive income or lifestyle business or if the business forms a pyramid pyramid schemes (laughs) you should avoid all those So, uh, the shortcut at the end of the day is the long route, be consistent, Mm -hmm. do the hard work, and then eventually you'll have an easier path to financial success or passive income, but you can't do that without putting in the work
0: for sure. But back, but
1: yeah, back, back to the, the original question that we were talking about or the original point was kind of knowing with the end in mind of what kind of business you want to build. One question I'm curious is, is. How did you decide what type of business you wanted to build, where the spectrum ranges from, I'm just going to make coffee and like sell it to one person, I'm just going to do an online business, all the way to something at the national scale. And like you have a great software job, which you also really enjoy. So there's competing priorities, competing things you love to do. How did you go about deciding where this business would fit into your life and the scale you wanted to have it at?
0: when I quipped about, you know, seeing a lot of folks who hated their nine to five, and were looking to replace it, you know, I think for a lot of a lot of folks, that is like an actual true legitimate motivator to build a great empire, so to speak. For myself, I enjoy my nine to five, right? Like that's, you know, I, I appreciate the stability that a nine to five provides, I appreciate and enjoy the work that I do, I enjoy and appreciate the company I work for, like, I don't have any negatives in that category that would push me to want to replace it with anything so having that it helps me it helps me in two areas one it lets me kind of just do whatever i think is interesting and see if it works out which is kind of how the coffee thing started and you know to answer your question more directly that's more or less the perspective i took on it that was the direction you know let's uh, start selling coffee on the internet and see what happens. Right. You know, if it, if it, if it blows up, fantastic. If not, if it's just kind of a thing that exists kind of off to the side, that's fine too. I'm totally okay with that. You know, I set the benchmark so low that, you know, as long as a month is profitable, like to me, that's, that's a win. That's a success right there. Like that's practically the only goal that I have (laughs) is to remain profitable, you know? So, um, and the second thing, You know, having a nine to five and having that stable income, it allows me to feel comfortable taking a risk and, you know, being comfortable with the potential of failure. You know, my bills are still going to get paid if I had to close down the coffee business tomorrow. Like, I'm not concerned at the least bit about that. Do the taxes the final year and be done with it. Like, that's it. You know, I'm able to just kind of shut it off almost immediately because there's no there's no side effects from, you know, from that. So not having the financial risk while still be aim- being able to take risks, I think puts me in a unique position to kind of just do what seems interesting in the moment. Yeah, you know? I,
1: I think that there's a lot of great stuff to unpack there. <clears throat> one, I'd start off with risk reward, where one good point you highlighted is that it's important to have some stable source of income, To balance out the risk, you want to kind of do 80-20, 80% consistency, being able to take care of your bills, frees you up to focus on these passion projects that might be a bit more risky. The same can apply to investing and not just with being able to put cash aside, but you can think much more clearly when you have the stability. If you are dependent on this coffee business, you are going to be stressed out and you're not going to be as an effective of a thinker. And then Mm -hmm. second thing is that you talked about starting this coffee business saying, hey, we're just going to see where this goes. We're just going to kind of have fun and grow it as we can. And one of the value points I see there is that by doing this, you're taking a much longer term approach where because you're not just purely doing this for the cash, you'll be able to stick with it longer. There is value to doing things just for cash, such as a job. But again, starting with the end in mind, you're like, I'm doing this purely because I enjoy it. So that way, no matter how long something takes, you're going to stick with it. And Mm -hmm. that's why people will often say, pursue an area of passion related to your business, because it will help you stick through the hard times, grow throughout the process. That being said, you do want to make sure that it's something you're willing to commit to for a long time. And then one other good point you brought up was, you actually really enjoy your day job you love it and i think that that's an important thing to highlight because a lot of people get stuck in this hustle porn quote unquote this entrepreneurship porn oh i need to quit my job right away and start my own business it's like wait a second why do you need to do that there's Mm -hmm. nothing wrong with loving your job and there is a lot of value to the consistency like you said It feels good to be able to go to bed at night knowing I'm going to get my paycheck again in two weeks. And uh, a lot of people should question why they want to start their own business uh, and if it's to pursue a passion like you're doing, if it's to replace their income, because there are risks and rewards to each aspect and entrepreneurship may be right for some, but people should also recognize all of the risk and inconsistency involved and think if they can handle that threshold and if it's the best way to achieve their goals going to the, Oh no. Yeah. Jump in on that. It sounded like you have some.
0: And I was just thinking before we, before we get too far uh, away from that one thing that came to my mind, I wrote down here was like the, you know, those who I would argue if you can leave your nine to five and keep your bills paid, then fine, go for it. Right. I, but I've, A lot of folks that I saw, you know, especially during my Amazon era, uh, who were trying to leave their 9 to 5 or were leaving their 9 to 5 maybe didn't really have a backup plan or the finances to supplement the now lost income, some of them did. And I, you know, I would argue if you have, if you have enough savings or you have enough alternative income, you know, you have a spouse that makes plenty of money and, you know, if you quit your job, it'd be fine, right? If you have a backstop like that, you know, I would never argue to stay in your nine to five just because, you know, having, having those additional resources definitely takes a lot of the pressure off of what's going to happen when I quit my job. You know, as long as your bills are gonna still get paid, I would argue almost opposite of what I argued, you know, 10 minutes ago and that, you know, go for it. If, if you are truly committed to making it a full-time endeavor and you have the resources to make that happen, absolutely do that. I feel like if if I wanted to make the coffee business a full-time endeavor, you know, we have the finances to make that happen. I could make that happen, but I don't want to, I could, but I don't want to, you know, and knowing that that is there just in case, you know, again, falls back in that category of being able to offload the risk because everything is already taken care of. And the coffee is more or less just for fun.
1: Yeah. And and this is a very good point too. And the fact that it depending on how you think of it, can contradict with the previous point. I don't think it really contradicts. I think what it highlights is that so much is contextual. Like you said, like knowing what's right for you. And it makes me think of the fact that a lot of people mistake comfort for happiness and they can fall into the groove of, oh, I'm very content with what I'm doing, but not really thinking about how pursuing these projects while uncomfortable comfortable can lead to a lot more fulfillment and happiness. And mm-hmm. you get a lot of your fulfillment and happiness from all these projects you're working on, as well as from family life, kids and things like that. But I think a lot of people get stuck in the groove of I'm in my job. I just watched the same Netflix shows on, on replay and they should be able to take a step back and say, wait a second, what am I actually doing? Is this bringing me fulfillment or am I just avoiding pain by keeping consistency? So analyzing the goals and then making sure to know the difference between happiness
0: and fulfillment
1: versus
0: mm-hmm. the the comfortableness. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, you know for those listening who are like, but Jonathan, I really really hate my nine to five and want to get out now. I don't necessarily have all the immediate money, but I feel like I could make it work. And to that, the only thing I can really say is only you know that like that's that is something at the end of the day, you know, Jake and I can sit here and tell you what we think the best ideas are some of it based on experience, some of it based on, you know, being in our, you know, comfortable positions currently. Ultimately, you know, you know, your risk, the risk you're willing to tolerate your, the highest level of stress you're willing to take on, you know, your personals and financial situations, the best, like only you can really make that decision if you feel like the best route for your success overall is to just peace out tomorrow without really having a backup plan, then fine. That's, you know, if that's the best solution for you, then go for it. Just know that, you know, you're, you're taking on a bit of an extra load and be aware what that actually means. Like it's, that's also acceptable. There's no one size fits all answer here. And I I love that you said that because that's one of
1: the main points of this show that I like to highlight is that so much of advice is contextual. I can give my opinion, you can give yours, and advice that works for us may not work for someone else. And I think that one thing that's very important that I want to try to dig into with this show is being able to examine other people's paths, their way of thinking, and then have listeners and other people really do the thinking for themselves. Mm -hmm. I know that early on in entrepreneurship and business and in life, I would look to others and say, what are they doing? What's the right answer? But since what's right for one person may not be right for the others, at the end of the day, you're going to have to do some critical thinking and think for yourself. And the more people can train themselves to make these tough decisions and be decisive in what they think is right for them, despite what other people say, the better off they'll be in life. And I I think that this coffee business you're running is a great way to do that. I think that there's more than one way, but starting your own business, great way to teach you how to think with constraints and difficult situations. And this is an area that people should try to practice more because it's such a valuable skill in life.
0: Agreed. Agreed. I don't have anything else to add to that. I love <laughs> it. It's very eloquently put. Thank you. Professional I- podcast host right there, everybody.
1: <laughs> well, I'm going to have to get your podcasting tips in a little bit because you have some more experience.
0: So I have that bullet on here. Don't worry. We'll get there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and Before we get there, I wanted to jump into the Amazon business. Uh, yeah, I know that you mentioned it. the Amazon business, how you segued from Amazon to the coffee business. Before Mm -hmm. we talk about the segue part, I wanted to just hear a little bit about what this Amazon business was.
0: Yeah. So like, I think like most folks, I got started in retail arbitrage. Um, It was neat. It was a neat idea. And- Um,
1: Retail arbitrage, could you just tell listeners who don't know? We do
0: have a yeah. good amount
1: of some Amazon listeners, but there's also the, the non-Amazon listeners as well.
0: Of course, of course, of course. Retail arbitrage is the idea of, or the practice of, really, um, say you're at your local Target or other retail store of choice. It really doesn't matter. Um, and you see a product for sale on the shelf for a price, Um, that particular product is selling for, let's say two or three times more on Amazon. Retail arbitrage is the concept of buying that product from that retail store or even online and selling it on Amazon for a profit. So, I mean, it could really be any, any particular product too. Like there's no, you know, one of the, I think one of the biggest allures to it is that it could, it could literally be anything. You know, there's such a wide range of product categories that folks gravitate towards, you know, especially at this time of year. You know, there's a lot of toys and home goods and things like that, especially after seasons end and things go on clearance. You know, people are swooping into the retail stores to, you know, scoop up clearance and then, you know, send it into Amazon. Amazon's warehouses um, to be fulfilled by them. What we, you know, more commonly refer to as fulfilled by Amazon or FBA. Um. And yeah rinse and repeat like that's it that's that's in a nutshell that's the entire concept you know buy low sell high buy from a retail store sell high on amazon
1: yeah and what one funny point or one interesting point i think you bring up buy low sell high you can often draw correlations between different vectors in life and business Mm -hmm. that people don't think about like a lot of like stocks work the same way right like buy low sell high And people don't think about, oh, you can deploy capital into other forms of investments, such as random toys from Target or sneakers. And being able to draw these correlations across Mm -hmm. different verticals and markets can help you think outside the box, come up with new ideas. So that's just one exercise that people can start to practice is how can I take novel ideas from one area in business and life and apply it to others? But back to the the retail arbitrage business, so mm-hmm. you were you were doing some retail arbitrage. I'm not sure if you were also doing some online arbitrage.
0: Yeah, I did I did both. Um, online arbitrage wasn't as fulfilling, I think, just because it was so hands off and not really engaging. you know. Mm-hmm. I think at the time, and I, I, I'm sure a lot of folks would agree with me on this, those that do retail arbitrage, part of it is the thrill of the hunt. You know, being able to go find those deals and scooping them up before some mythical other person does. (laughs) Um, You know, I, I don't suspect it was as or it is as a big of a thing over here in this part of the country because, you know, from the time that I did it, I found a lot of the best, the best flippable deals were in the Midwest and on the in the Southeast, I think more naturally because of just how the the various chains and other stores priced their items they tend to they tend to go on clearance i'm trying to think how i want to describe this succinctly with also not insulting folks at the same time (laughs) the the lower cost of living areas tended to see products go on clearance first which means up here in the Pacific Northwest. I don't know if you know, but Seattle is a high cost of living area. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. We got a, a you couple know, of tech. Top five. There. So the things that would go on clearance at Walmart in, you know, Biloxi, Mississippi, is that in Mississippi? I think I might have, I hope, I hope so. Otherwise I just made that up um, <laughs> or Kansas city, right? Like they would never go on clearance over here. Like they would just sell out at regular price. There would be no need for it to go on clearance. So that, you know, it took, it took a little bit of the fun out of it in that, you know, the hunts were automatically a bit more difficult. Um, but at the same time, I don't it didn't ever feel like there was a large retail arbitrage following, if you will, up here in the Pacific Northwest. So I also kind of feel like there are enough people up here that make enough money that they don't feel like it's necessary. Yeah. You know, and I think that's where a lot of folks motivation to getting into this comes from is that, you know, their job isn't fulfilling or their job doesn't pay enough and they need to supplement their income. Right. So mm. I did it for the hell of it. And maybe that's insulting to folks who are doing it to actually try and make a living. But I was doing it <laughs> just for kicks, um, which also helped me realize that I don't actually like it as much as I thought I would. Yeah. I, I did it for probably six months and nah. It wasn't for me, so I switched to wholesale. Um, having a, a wholesale Amazon business, wholesale meaning buying products at wholesale prices from distributors or vendors directly. I would argue the proper way. Um, <laughs> I have some. I have some now. You know, interesting, unique perspectives on the concept of retail arbitrage. Maybe we'll get into later, but being in a business making quote legitimate business purchases from other businesses being authorized to sell their products. I use the word authorized. We'll get to that in (laughs) a second on Amazon for a profit, kind of like a regular retail establishment would right? like buying, you know, buying low selling high, but now I'm doing it the quote legitimate way. I've dropped a few particular keywords in there. I promise we will get to that, but that is uh how the Amazon business morphed. and uh, did wholesale for about a year or so. That's how I met uh, mutual friend Dylan Carter, and ultimately how Dylan and I uh, ended up doing the Welcome to Growth podcast. Uh, for those that don't know who Dylan is, Dylan is the mastermind, one of the masterminds behind the Aura repricing tool for Amazon sellers. Um, company is called Vendrive. You could I'll toss a link for show notes there. Yeah, um, and quick plug, uh, Dylan. You're gonna
1: be able to if you want to find out more about him, you'll be able to yeah. listen to him in one of the first few episodes. So oh, there feel you free go. To check that out. We're tying everything together, so I love we'll it. We'll Throw
0: that link in the show notes too. <laughs> so that's the that's the short version of it. Um, I I transitioned from the Amazon business to doing coffee because coffee was more mentally fulfilling, I suppose, is probably the best way to put it. Um, I enjoyed selling other people's products for money. I, you know, like I said, I love selling stuff on the internet, right? Where it comes from doesn't necessarily matter, but it wasn't mine. And there was a lot of overhead to making that happen. And I felt like if I'm going to have this time overhead, mostly, yeah, mostly time, time and mental effort. I'm gonna have that overhead i'd rather just sell my own stuff and ergo see coffee conversation from earlier no i love it man and one point i want to kind of dig
1: into yeah you mentioned an interesting point about how a lot of people will jump into retail arbitrage for the cash aspect and a lot of people in the seattle area are maybe making more money uh and because of that they don't necessarily feel the need to jump into retail arbitrage. Not that everyone mm-hmm. who jumps into retail arbitrage does it strictly for cash. But on that point, it's interesting to think about how the amount of cash we make can affect our priorities and what we do. If you're yeah. making $0 and you need food, you're going to do about anything. If you're making a million dollars a year, you're going to be a lot more particular about what activities you partake in for cash. I'm mm-hmm. curious your thoughts on, on how the amount of money you make can affect your priorities and decision-making, and then also maybe how it might have played out in your life if any examples come to mind.
0: Yeah, the amount of money you, you're you making, the amount of money you have at your disposal to spend on your endeavor, I think absolutely affects both what you're going to do and, and how quickly you're going to jump into it. Um, I wouldn't argue that the amount of money you have would determine your success because I could easily argue that you know <laughs> there are there are things you can do that don't cost a lot to start and you can incredi- be incredibly successful. With uh, my first retail arbitrage shipment was like five items after Christmas. Like it was, what was it? Oh my god, it was uh, Christmas scented Airwick refills. <laughs> so random i i but, love the random products you know it was they were they were so heavily discounted at target it was probably like week after christmas like december 29th or something like that right and you know they the numbers worked essentially you know they the what they were going for on amazon people were trying to buy them because they enjoyed them so much but they weren't able to find them So there's a little kind of mini opportunity there. So I scooped up all that Target had, which I'd been to leave was only five. But I think that kind of proves the point that there was only five left. Right. So that was my first retail arbitrage shipment. And I think I spent like $8 on them total, you know, and that's how the whole thing got started. Um, You know, I know a lot of folks who get started on Amazon, take the book route, you know, Mm -hmm. selling used books on Amazon because also doesn't generally require a lot of capital. That's fine. I like I like the the used book flipping market. I think it's an interesting and unique kind of subgenre of online sales and e-commerce. And it's, how do I want to put it? it it's much less offensive to me than retail arbitrage is today. And I don't, maybe offensive is probably a little overkill. I, I Like I said earlier, I have mixed feelings about the concept of retail arbitrage now just because having been in it, I've seen behind the curtain enough to shy away from recommending it as a place to start when starting an Amazon business. Now, like it is a thing you can do. Sure. And it's not a difficult thing to do. Sure. But it is also legally questionable. And (laughs) some would argue, no, it's totally fine. First sale doctrine. I would say there's asterisks to that. It's, we can we can go down that route. Maybe some other time. If if I went down that route, we we'd take the next <laughs> hour and ten minutes to to talk about it. But um, you know, all of all of the asterisks and gray areas that come with that were how I ended up, and I'll put a link for this in show notes too for the retail arbitrageurs who are interested. Um, I came up with a little mini search engine on one of my sites, sellerjournal.com, uh, called Greenlight. That it's essentially a, it's a database of Brands that folks, it's all, it's all user contributed, you know, the initial, the initial grouping of, uh, of brands was stuff that i scraped from the internet and, you know, various levels of probably accuracy. Um, but as it evolved, all, everything that was added thereafter was all user contributed. Um, these are all folks that have reported having issues selling those brands on Amazon You know, either they received, you know, intellectual property complaints from Amazon directly because of trademark issues or they got a cease and desist letter from some random law firm, stuff like that. So that's where I say it's it is more of a gray area than it seems. And there is a lot more risk than it seems because things like branding and trademarks and stuff like that, like that's really important to a lot of companies. And because those hurdles can be high and potentially expensive. It is, it's more risk than I would, I would be willing to take knowing what I know now. Right. Um, But yeah, no, the, the book folks, they, uh, I think that's a special talent. I think finding, you know, I tried the book thing for a bit too. And again, like everything else over here, you know, there's the, the book market up here. I only met one guy who lives about an hour South who was really good at the book flipping, but he had to make it a full-time effort in order to get good at it. Like, and it's, you know, if, if you're not interested in making it a full-time endeavor, I don't know. I don't really know what to say to that besides it is, you know, you can be really successful at it, but, Books are, it's a lot of work, both physically and kind of administratively, because there are so many of them out there, like literally hundreds of millions of unique titles, right? How do you know what's good? You know, are you comfortable with sending it to Amazon and having it sit for nine months before somebody buys it? Like, do the numbers make sense for you for that? You know, like there's, there are extra steps, lots of extra steps involved. So I wouldn't turn anyone away from books, but I also... I don't know if if somebody came to me, I'll try and tidy this up a little bit here. If somebody came to me and asked, you know, what, what type of Amazon business would you start today? I think I would start with wholesale because selling an established brand is a lot easier than coming up with your own case in point coffee that we discussed earlier. But once you've, once you've kind of, built up both the mental, mental capacity and the understanding and potentially additional capital, start selling your own brands at that point, like use the wholesale as a jumping point, a jump off point, but don't do it forever. Like you will find selling your own unique products under your own unique brand to be the most fulfilling. It's also the most difficult. So that's my step two.
1: And additionally on that, it goes back to our previous point about risk reward, balancing out consistency with risk. You have the day job to balance out the business and then you have the more consistent cash from wholesale to balance out the private label or your own brand. Your own yeah. brand. It's almost
0: like there's a theme to all of this, right? Are you, are you noticing <laughs> something here? <laughs> Connecting the dots a bit. Yeah. The, yeah. It's almost like I'm doing this on purpose. <laughs> on the, it's, it's funny.
1: So with selling the books, the way yeah. I found out about uh, selling books on Amazon, is I was actually at a party with a friend and it was like a Mm -hmm. themed party. Everyone brings books, you kind of put it down in a pile, you bring three books, maybe you take two books home to keep. So I was like, oh cool, like a networking party event, we all get to bring books with us home, get some new books. I turn from a conversation I'm having and I see my buddy scanning all the books on the tables. (laughs) What are you doing? He's like, I'm trying to see which of these are the most profitable. And that, that, that's how I found out about, um,
0: selling the books on Amazon. I did that. I did that to my mom's bookcase. You know, I <laughs> books on Amazon. Like, I was like, can I go through your books? <laughs> She's like, why? And it's like, I want to sell some of them on Amazon. I'll, I'll buy them off of you. I promise. <laughs> like, I quite literally just took some of her random books that she didn't read. Oh, uh, which is, you know, I think that's how a lot of the booksellers start. They, they look at their own collection. They look at, you know collections close to them and you know I, I i remember very very specifically one morning going to the local thrift shop it was just a couple blocks from where we lived at the time and i was the only one there because it was like 9:30 in the morning or whatever <laughs> and i'm just standing over in the corner in the books going through the books like <laughs> fucking weirdo <laughs> oh man those were the days sometimes sometimes i think about what it would take to get back into it but then i'm like i got too much other shit going on you know we talked about coffee i didn't even tell you that i also make candles and collect coins so (laughs) we didn't even get to those other bullet points yet like we're you know almost an hour into this quality program but yeah it's the uh We can talk about the candles and coins if you want or not. We can just let that hang and let the allure, you know, mystify the listener, I suppose.
1: So I want to jump into those, but there's a few topics I want to jump into even more. So selfishly, I'm going to save those for either later this podcast or for round two. Uh, So what I want to say is, is with all these things going on, right? You've got the candles, you've got coin collecting, you've got your day job and your business. That's a lot of different priorities going on. I'm wondering mm-hmm. how you personally decide what to prioritize and how you think about that. Because I, I think that that's a challenge for a lot of people today and in our society today, especially. People are very multi priority. There's can often be scatterbrained because we have so much coming at us at once. Mm-hmm. So being able to effectively prioritize, deciding how to allocate time. It's a challenge for all of us. And I'd love to hear your take on that.
0: Yeah, well, I'll be the first to admit I'm not the best (laughs) at balancing all of that. Um, the coin collecting is more so just for me to build a collection, but it does, you know, it does still actually take time and money. Um, but you know, balancing work and a family and free time and coffee and candles and errands and I I could keep going, right? It's, it's a lot. I'm, I'm not going to lie. It, it it takes a lot of effort to prevent myself from forgetting about one of, or more of those things. Um, And I will unfortunately admit that, you know, for a decent part of this year, the coffee business kind of just kind of sat on cruise control. Like it, it's form it, it existed and it continued to operate, but I wasn't doing anything with it. You know, I wasn't coming up with new products. You know, I wasn't building any marketing campaigns. I wasn't doing any of that, right? Like it was money was coming in, money was going out. And it's kind of just, like I said, cruise control. Um, th- candle business is seasonal. So that one's easy. You know, most folks don't buy candles in the summertime. Fine. I don't have to really think about it. Right. You know, but at the same time, I also have in my head that, you know, family comes first, you know, self-care comes first or second, you know, like there's, if I have to, I have to be okay with saying I'm only going to get to this today and I will do the other thing next week or whatever. Like if that's, if that's going to cause a problem for that other thing, I have overcommitted myself. Mm -hmm. That's usually the red flag for me. Right. Um, To give you a a prime example right now, you know, I'm working on a a large order, large candle order for a couple of folks for the holidays, had to put the uh, coffee thing, uh, uh, an active project on, on, on the back burner. Because I I did not have enough free time in the day to make sure I'm tending to my needs with my family, tending to my own needs, and doing all the business stuff at once, right? I had to pick, you know. So, as far as how I ensure everything actually gets done, (laughs) I don't know if I do, (laughs) to be honest with you. I think because, you know, like I had mentioned earlier, because these are things that I do, uh, do for fun, do for kicks the money is just a nice bonus. I don't feel the pressure to make sure I'm constantly growing all of these business hobbies. You know, does that make sense? Like, I think I might be a bit atypical in that regard. I think if it was something I was doing full time, I probably would not have a multifaceted business lifestyle. Look at that. That's a buzzword. I'll write that down, everybody. Um, But like, but I, but seriously, like, I don't think I would have those other endeavors because it, you know, business one is now my full time thing. You know, does that make sense? Yeah. And what I'm unpacking here is that
1: it's important to to unpack. I do. I I like to unpack. I like to pack, uh, (laughs) (laughs) move 26 times. So I have some experience packing.
0: I have, Uh, I, I recognize that I've moved 11 times in 12 years. So
1: damn. Um, We'll we'll have to dig into that as well. So adding that to the list. (laughs) What I was going to say though. Oh yeah, long show. So yeah. (laughs) So it it seems like the way you're deciding is what to prioritize is based on interest and passion versus cash specifically. So your deciding factors are less of the economic perspective. Where someone who might need to pay the bills that would be their deciding factor
0: absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a, a very succinct way of of, of describing or reiterating my, uh, my rambling there. No, no, it's great.
1: And for the candles versus the coffee business, I was going to ask how you decided specifically which to prioritize for those two. Was yeah. it because of strictly passion, because mm-hmm. candles, you had a very clear order in front of you versus coffee, it was a little bit less uncertain the next steps to take? I'm wondering this one specific example, how you decided, let me prioritize these upcoming candle orders versus any coffee expansion or things like that.
0: Yeah. So I think it would help a little if I described the the coffee project I had kind of put on the back burner. So one of the things that I had, when I had started the coffee business, I wanted to do based on a lot of feedback I got was offer a way to sample the product without committing to full, full bags. Right. Because You know, bespoke, fresh roasted coffee, blah, 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 trademark, trademark um, (laughs) is a bit more expensive than what you buy in the retail store just naturally because it's, you know, there's, there's more overhead to it. Um, You know, what you buy in the store is all done in massive bulk quantities, right? So it's the economics of scale are on the side of the manufacturers and retailers there. You don't quite have that when you're roasting to order or as close as, you know, roasting to order as you can feasibly do. So when the prices are higher, folks aren't quite as interested in immediately committing to a full-size purchase. They would like to sample, see what they would actually, you know, be most interested in before committing. So I had sample, you know, I had like a sample pack of three. Was it five? And No, it was three. I had this... I couldn't remember. I was having this conversation with my wife last night and I couldn't remember then. And it took me a while to figure it out. I had a three, I had a three pack and a, uh, a six pack sample, you know, two ounce bags each, you know, you can pick either all just three blends or the three at the time, single origin coffees, or you can get all six and go nuts. Right. Um, had that running for a while. Uh, supply constraints made that difficult to continue uh, getting the sample bags Uh, plot twist after uh, the pandemic started they became difficult to find Um, super fun fact it's it's an incredibly fun fact to everybody I'm sure tiny coffee bags are difficult to acquire regularly (laughs) who knew um so that that became a hurdle for me and then the constant packaging redesign influenced whether or not that you know that offering would continue in general so that whole concept got shelved for a while but i wanted to bring it back for the holidays because i you know last christmas and the christmas before that you know christmas 2020 christmas 2021 uh folks liked giving those as gifts um it was, you know, get a sample pack for the coffee lover in your family. You know, like that whole that whole concept, right? Um, so people would buy three, four, five, six at a time and give them out. And that, you know, neat because it's free promotion, right? Inside there was marketing material, you know, 25% off your full-size bag of your choice. Buy whichever one of these you like, you know, go nuts. Um, so that was, you know, that was super helpful in that regard. So I wanted to bring it back for the holidays, but I wanted to do it maybe a little bit more, right. Mm. You know, I didn't want to say, I want to do it right this time. I wanted to get closer to doing it. Right. Mm. And by that I meant the packaging was a little bit more interesting and these samples were a little bit more fulfilling, I guess, if you want to put it that way. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean, going from two ounce to four ounce. One of the, one of the bits of feedback that I got was that the two ounce one the two ounce bag didn't have a valve, which if you've never looked at a coffee bag up close before, they all have little one way air valves in them mm. that after the beans are roasted, they off gas pretty substantially, uh, mostly carbon dioxide. You don't want them to sit in their own stew, so to speak. <laughs> so the carbon dioxide gets expelled out of the bag. Uh, regular air does not come into the bag to make the beans stale. It's great. It's mechanical genius. The two-ounce bags I had didn't have those valves, so they would puff up and look funny. Um, so pairing that with wanting to offer a little bit more, I found four-ounce bags that had valves, matched the current bag style. Great. Everything was falling into place. Um, the the uh, the box that they came in, you know, I went through all of the trouble of designing you know, essentially creating a custom box, printing on the outside, writing of my choice, et cetera. Um, I got real close to the end. Was so close. The The last hurdle was how I wanted to offer these samples. What I really wanted to do was allow folks to pick any three of their choice. doesn't matter. Two problems with that, which... I'm sure there's an answer and you'll understand why I haven't found out an answer uh here at the end of this story, but the uh two problems were one I use Shopify which powers seaplanecoffee.com to also track my supply inventory. So I have a bunch of draft products in there that represent all of my supplies. So I, there's a small Shopify app I will uh if I remember I'll put a link in the show notes for that. Uh actually I'm going to write that down before I forget, um, that when a product is purchased, all of the relevant supplies are updated. Helps me keep track because all of my supplies are with the roaster. I don't see any of that stuff. So day to day, I have no idea what they've got unless I'm keeping track of myself. So by wanting to add or wanting to allow someone to pick any three of their choice, I have to still be able to keep track of my supplies. Fine. The second problem with that was that there's no easy way for Shopify to do that out of the box to, you know, let somebody pick any combination of 3 because Shopify has what are called variants of products. You pick a product and like let's say it's small, medium, large, extra large. Those sizes, those are all variants of a product, right? They have a ceiling on how many variants you're allowed. And because I have, I had eight options to choose from, eight times eight times eight variants. Someone can do the math and say, that's a lot of variants, right? (laughs) So that, you know, now all of a sudden I have to come up with a bespoke or custom system on the back end to kind of help facilitate this. So you know in the whole concept of enemy is the or perfect is the enemy of good you know it, the perfect solution in my head was to have the full bespoke pick any 3 and uh, everything's great but my wife's like why not just do what you did before and just have predefined categories and it's like well, I don't want <laughs> you know I don't, I don't <laughs> you know what I mean like I'm back to that you know eternal struggle meanwhile over in uh, candleland I get it, you know, I get a couple emails from a couple of real estate agents. They want to give candles as gifts and stuff like that. And they want to, you know, do large orders, you know? So I use that as an easy excuse to just shift my focus entirely and go focus on the candle thing for a while. It's not, you know, it's not a great uh, ending to the story, unfortunately. And at some point I do know I need to go back to finishing up the sample project because I need to get that out. I have all the supplies, everything's in my garage ready to go. I have all the boxes, I've got all the bags, I've got all the labels. I've paid for all of that stuff. None of that cost has been recuperated in form of sales yet. So something needs to happen with that. And I'm, once I've got the candle thing done, I have to, I basically have to force myself to go back <laughs> to that because I can't leave that thread undone or it'll just never get done. Because once the holidays are over, I'm going to be even less motivated to do anything about it. <laughs> and you you do end with a good point, though, which
1: you highlight the fact that the candle opportunity was very clearly defined. Next action steps were very straightforward. Yeah. Versus with coffee, there was a bit more ambiguity deciding what to do, which leads to more friction. And it brings up the point that anytime you can make something more clearly defined and easier to act on, you're going to be more likely to act on it. And Mm -hmm. people who have these big tasks or challenges in front of them, it can be daunting. You get stuck in your head. You're thinking, oh, I don't even know what to do. Focus on breaking down the tasks. Try to outline things as much as possible. Make them small, actionable steps versus big, challenging, I guess, vague, nebulous things. And that can help you act on opportunities. And additionally, that when presented with two opportunities, it's a lot easier to execute on the more straightforward one. So people can have that in mind when they're deciding what are two things that they should potentially act on. One thing I'd, yeah. I'd like to hop to now, you mentioned how you were thinking through all these different coffee combinations and your wife was like, hey, just do what you did last time. On the note of wife, I'd love to hear about uh, relationships now, kind of jumping over into relationships, kids, things like that. How did you actually meet your current wife?
0: She's so supportive of my endeavors. The only rule is that it can't affect our finances. <laughs> we can't go broke because of anything that I do. <laughs> That's basically it. You know, as long as as long as long the, uh, the savings account doesn't go down, our investments don't go down because of what i'm doing then go nuts more or less she would she didn't actually say that i'm in i'm paraphrasing and interpreting her words and actually yeah. <laughs> it, w- it was more how she said versus what she said. <laughs> right right it's the fact that she hasn't said no <laughs> so that's how i'm interpreting that oh. but yeah no we uh we met uh we went on our first date uh new year's day 2017 we met on eHarmony. the uh concept of internet dating is very real. Um, I was not foreign to internet dating at the time. I had actually met my first wife on eHarmony, ironically, back in 2011. Long story short, obviously it didn't work out. We were not compatible people in the slightest. Thanks, eHarmony. <laughs> um, I look back on that though and I think I, I, I joke that it's eHarmony's fault but looking back on you know what my profile was at the time, I think I kind of opened myself up inadvertently to that kind of individual. And she's not a bad person. I I sincerely doubt she'll ever hear this. But (laughs) for the sake of not being a garbage human, she was not a terrible person. But her personality and lifestyle needs and wants were not compatible with me at all. And it took me much too long to see that, unfortunately. And
1: but re- related to that, sorry to, to cut you off, I think that you bring fine. up a, a good point I'd like to just quickly dig into, where two people can both be really great people and just not yeah. live compatible lifestyles. And yeah. I'd love to hear, if you don't mind, some examples of maybe incompatibilities. I know for me, I'm trying to learn from other people's experiences, and it helps to learn like things that went well, maybe lessons that were taken away to go into the next relationship, that kind of thing
0: yeah, her, her lifestyle centered a lot around, uh, social circles Mm -hmm. and I don't want to sound terrible when I say this or make it sound negative, but, uh, she got a lot of enjoyment out of, uh, things like shopping and, Mm -hmm. you know, updating her look and Mm -hmm. always, you know, like refreshing her style and things like that. Right. Like some people are all, their their style is constantly changing right because they're always on the bleeding edge of whatever fashion this that and the other thing and Mm -hmm. that like that was like a big deal for her whereas myself you know the the most fashion i have is right now jeans and a flannel right like this you know i've had this flannel for a few years now like i don't i don't really refresh my wardrobe that often i'll add to it but it's usually in the same style as what i've already got right Mm -hmm. so There was always a lot of conflict in that, you know, I, I liked to budget. I liked to have savings. I liked to have, you know, to, to use the analogy. I liked to have all of the ducks in a row before we go off and do some other thing, right? Like if there's, if there's extra money in the budget this month to do whatever, go nuts. I frankly do not care. But if we have to sacrifice something in the budget, especially something that's required, or we have to take on additional debt to do something passive or fleeting, like going on a shopping spree, not going to be a fan of that. Right. <laughs> so that was constantly a point of contention. And at the time I was not a very, I, I was pretty passive mm-hmm. about standing my ground with stuff like that. Like I, uh, I didn't have I'm trying to think of how I want to describe this. I, I, I didn't have the best self-esteem. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of just felt lucky that there was somebody that was willing to be with me. So I kind of, just, like, I let a lot of things go because of that, right? My standards, I, I pushed, them, pushed them down so I could maintain this thing that I felt like, you know, it took so incredibly long to get and I'm at risk of losing because I'm not worthy, kind of, you know, you know what I mean? So because I let a lot of that stuff slide and I didn't really stand my ground or, you know, actually take a position or stance on any of this stuff, you know, she more or less ended up running, basically running the show uh, when it came to our finances and she's not great at managing finances. Um, And, you know, once you've piled up enough years of that, which admittedly, you know, we were only married for, little under three years before the uh, divorce was finalized. Uh, Like that's still a lot of time to do a lot of damage, you know, and it took me years to get out of that hole. Um, So yeah, it was a lot of little things like that. It was the low self-esteem. It was the incompatible personalities. It was the incompatible lifestyles. Like you, you know, we didn't really have much of an interest in each other's interests You know, like I don't expect my wife to take an active interest in all of my hobbies and businesses. What I do expect is at least some baseline of support. If I need her for something like the, the the minimum from her that satisfies what I need is, you know, offering advice if I ask for it, but like, if I don't ask for it, she doesn't offer it up. Like she doesn't feel like it's necessary you know we have we have an appropriate dynamic in that regard and like that's arguably not that's a pretty low bar frankly right um but in my in my previous marriage we didn't even have that right like you know my wife understands that sometimes i like play video games totally all right with that you know obviously within reason and within certain boundaries like you know you also have a daughter so keep that in mind you know what i mean (laughs) But like it's looking back on it, I never I rarely felt like I could just do random shit that I wanted to do. You know, I found myself after after we split, I found myself doing all of the random shit that I found interesting and probably being the happiest that I had been in a long time just sitting there as a bachelor just fucking playing video games all saturday you know what i mean just because like i'd never i never really got an opportunity to do that it was just like that pent-up demand you know what i mean so i learned i learned a lot about myself after that relationship and what i actually needed out of a relationship i had i had taken not really taken a course but i guess it was more of a book with some maybe some videos spread out here and there about how to, how to manage divorce from a guy's perspective, you know, like what, what is, what should be the most important to you as a guy? Um, I definitely don't remember the name of it, so it's probably not going to be in show notes, but (laughs) what it really taught me was, you know, it's, if you find yourself not focusing on yourself ever, like you will lose you will lose yourself as Eminem once said. Um, and you know, it, after the divorce, it gave me a lot of time to reflect on all of the things that used to make me, me that I had sidelined that really actually weren't bad after all. I just came to believe that they were right. Um, it took uh what was it? I think I spent eight months, 10 months, give or take, you know, living, uh, living alone, living the bachelor lifestyle I had at the time we were living in California. My ex-wife more or less made us move to California. See earlier conversation about just letting her run the show. Um, and since there was nothing left for me in California, I came back to Washington. So I spent a whole year and a half there. I only miss the weather. I miss nothing else about that state. Um, and it really let me uh, get a fresh start. You know, I started over. I had no furniture. I sold everything that wouldn't fit in the trunk of my Honda Accord before I moved back up here. And I drove back up with the cats. Uh, my, my mom came down to uh, keep me company, essentially, on the uh, two, three-ish day drive. And yeah, got to start fresh. New apartment, all new furniture. I went to a furniture store and bought a bunch of stuff. And yeah, it felt, I felt like an entirely new person, even though I was mostly the same as I was before. I was just able to actually act on and, you know, get to be the true version of myself. So that's why I say when I look, you know, when I looked back at my previous eHarmony profile, what, you know, it it was not. What I had described in there, I don't know how I ended up in that, in that space, but it was not who I actually was, like what I was looking for, how I described myself, it was not actually me. And once I, I basically had to create an entirely new profile because eHarmony had me pegged as some, some weirdo. So once I created the whole thing new and I promise I'll stop talking and let you, let you get in here. No, here this is great. Uh, once I created the whole profile new actually reflecting me like my interests and my hobbies and like who I actually was on the inside whole world opened up again so to speak as far as like you know potential matches as they say right and a couple months a couple months after that uh, my now wife and I matched spoiler that's the end of the story there (laughs) Uh, and yeah we had our first date on New Year's Day at a uh, coffee uh, coffee shop that no longer exists, RIP. Um, she was real creative with that. She was fielding her first dates at a coffee shop, like down the street from where she lived, but she was not revealing where she lived yet. Ah. <laughs> it was super resourceful, right? Um, props to her for that. Uh, but yeah, no, I uh, I won out. Apparently, I was uh, I was neat enough to stick around with. So, <laughs> and the uh, the rest is history. We got married. September 2019 right before the pandemic which is fantastic the pandemic's not fantastic our timing was um, and yeah now we have a eight and a half month old daughter I could I could go on about the whole kid concept as yeah, just a total side tangent but I will let you I will stop for a moment let you get in there before Oh, no, you're that. good Ben yeah
1: we'll definitely hop into kids later I just want <clears throat> to reiterate one point you made which is that it can get very easy To be stuck in a scarcity mindset of with your first partner, for instance, oh, I'm just lucky enough to be with this person. I can't vocalize who I am. I can't express my needs and desires. I should just be happy to be with them versus the abundance mindset of I can completely be my authentic self and I trust that there are right partners out there for me. And then when you get stuck in that situation, it feels like the relationship is a burden. You have to push through it and you can lose yourself. I know for me, I've had that experience in a a past relationship or two way, way long ago. And it's important to be able to know that you can be your authentic self. And there are relationships that can reinforce who you are and the person you want to be versus ones that can contradict that. So I'm, I'm very happy that you were able to spot that and push through that and just highlighting that for other people, whatever relationships you're in, make sure you live compatible lifestyles with that person. You're going to be with them for a lot longer than you think you will. Life is a lot longer than it can feel. And do you want this person who makes your life easier and makes you more of the version you are, or do you want to feel like you're fighting an uphill battle all the time? So just wanted to reiterate that.
0: And yeah, like I said, in hindsight, everything was an uphill battle, whether it was finances or just getting along, interests, like, well, the red flags were there from the start, but I chose to ignore them. And that was, as they say, I made that bed. And so then I slept in it and I paid that price for a long time. And I know it's, it's easy. It's way too easy to ignore the red flags. Believe me. Oh boy. Uh, (laughs) But think I was just I was just desperate for somebody you know what I mean like it's I I was willing to compromise on way too much just to try and fill a hole that I thought I had to fill you know which hindsight I didn't actually have to fill it like I said I was you know the happiest post-divorce that I had been in a long time just existing and doing my own shit on my own schedule you know And on that point,
1: I think it's important for people to remember that you can be a lot happier on your own than being with the wrong person. Too many of us get stuck in loneliness and we feel like I need someone. It's like, no, 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 Find yourself first. Be happy with yourself. And then that way you are choosing to be with someone because they make your life better, not because Mm -hmm. they build this void you have because you're lonely. Agreed. And one thing i want to touch on before we get to kids is on your current relationship it sounds like things are going very well very Mm -hmm. excited for you what are some thoughts you have on things that are particularly enhancing your relationship maybe things that are making it better things that you avoid doing which also help the relationship just general relationship advice advice based on your experience
0: yeah i think one of the biggest things that helped me in this current relationship is taking the time to, uh, I might might actually break this into two parts and they're both kind of emotions related. Uh, Part one would be taking the time to understand, I don't want to call them weaknesses, but they, the, the emotional parts of an individual where they are their weakest points, like they just like metaphorically speaking, like think of it, as a suit of armor right like there are going to be weak spots in that think about what those look like for that individual um and how you can like understand what happens like what what does it look like if you've accidentally poked that right like to give you an example you know um the dynamic between my wife and i i'm i i'm a meticulous Preparer, like familial preparer, if you will. Um, it took me quite a while to be okay with having kids because I didn't feel like I was prepared. Not not necessarily mentally, but like physically prepared, financially prepared. Like the the resources were not in place. Like if you imagine like a hunter gatherer, but in like a socio economical sense, right? Like I don't, I didn't feel like I had gathered enough of the socioeconomical berries or whatever, right? To, to be ready to start a family. So, you know, when it came to conversations like that with my wife, she's a very um not outwardly emotional person, but, you know, it is, it is obvious when you've hit, the certain spot where uh, the inward emotional processing has become begun, right? It's it's obvious once she's in that state, right? So being aware of those kinds of different, I guess, states of mind is probably another way to put it, right? If you're talking more than just emotions, being aware of what those look like and ha- <clears throat> how the other person both handles those and like what you know what kind of what kind of modes do they go into once they've caught, crossed those thresholds right like i can tell if i've pushed too far into a heavy topic but only through understanding how she processes heavy topics right there's some i had to do a lot of background work to be able to you know not just be a total dick when it's like why aren't you talking to me about this you know like it's if you, if you know what to look for, if you notice the signs, you can catch it early, you know? So that, and there was a second part to it that I really don't remember. There probably wasn't actually a second part. I might've thought there was a second part, but I guess, uh, you know, on the same topic of emotions, like, you know, knowing, knowing how she expresses her emo her various emotions, you know, knowing, you know, the age old, you know, being able to tell when your partner's upset, right. You know, say, is there something bothering you? And they say, no, I'm fine. Yeah, Bullshit. Right. But like beyond that joke, like there's actually some truth to that. Like knowing like what that, like through some trial and error and through some actual under attempt at understanding, I can tell when that I'm fine is actually I'm fine. And that I'm fine is not. I'm fine. You know what I mean? Like, being able to piece together the context and all the clues that led up to that moment, and, you know, understanding how they handle all of those sorts of things. And like, was I, was I a Dick earlier? Or like, did I, you know, were there things that are involved earlier that led up to this? That You know, you know what I mean? Like being able to put together all of those clues, I feel like helps a lot. So I'm not left guessing if like, what did I do? You know, like I should be able to figure out what I did on my own. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think one point you're
1: making is that it's very important to take the time and energy to really understand your partner, their vulnerabilities, what makes them them, their quote-unquote nervous ticks when you may have pushed them a little too far. Mm -hmm. And the more you get to know them, the more you're able to work with their ebbs and flows. You can make them happy. You can know when something you said may have made them a little sad. And just really being invested in the relationship I guess is a good Mm -hmm. way to put it. So it sounds Mm -hmm. like that's one thing that you're doing, which is really helping the relationship, investing the time and energy, getting to know your partner very well. And this is also something that comes a lot more naturally when you're with a partner who you're very compatible with versus one who you may have conflict with. And you might subconsciously be resistant to digging deep into
0: who they are or you might be more willing to pick a fight because <laughs> fuck it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Throw the boxing gloves on. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And it, you know, and along that same line, that's helped us figure out both like what we are individually good at in this relationship. You know, we, you know, we spend the time to figure out like what our love languages are and, you know, our, um, what is that? The, Briggs, Myers, Myers, the, the yeah. Myers, there we go. Sorry, sorry, Myers. I didn't put you first. I, <laughs> I regret the error. You know, we both took those tests, you know, and we got, got to see what, you know, what those meant and how they are compatible and incompatible with each other. Right. You know, so like, sure, you know, that's just all stuff on paper and, you know, to an extent, it doesn't always reflect 100% about you as the individual, but gives you an idea where to start. Right. And, and, You know, I think a lot of that helped. And honestly, that was all, that was all her doing. Like I hadn't thought of any of this stuff, you know, when we first started dating, like I didn't ever occur to me that maybe this stuff is important. Turns out it kind of is, you know, and through that we were able to establish like, you know, what, what we look for from each other as far as, you know, affection and, you know, conveyance of how we're feeling both about ourselves and about the other person, you know, things like that, right? And it it allows us to communicate without having to necessarily figure out how to find all of the best words all the time for communicating. You know, I'm not I'm not the best verbal communicator. Um, see all of the rambling we've done this afternoon, but you know, I can, for example, put it down in writing pretty well. So one of the things that we did was when we first started dating, super cheesy, but I love it. uh, We, we had a journal that we passed back and forth and used that. I know, right. I'm telling you, it's just gushing with, with cheese. Right. (laughs) Um, But you know, it was perfect for us because it allowed us to, you know, bypass our communication weaknesses and be able to put things down in writing like myself, you know, just being able to communicate in writing better than verbally. And for her not having to be basically put on the spot and have to express all of those sensitive things there in the moment, it gave her an opportunity to think and reflect and really, you know, figure out how she best wanted to express what was really on her mind. So, you know, little things like that, you might be surprised at how well they actually uh, end up working out. And, you know, today we don't really. We don't really journal. I think it's been a few years since we've done that. But when we, when we did that regularly, it helped a lot. It helped tear down a lot of barriers, a lot of, you know, various levels of, you know, discomfort and and foreign, you know, this is, this is all new, you know, especially for me who came out of a train wreck, you know, I was, I was a little hesitant, right? And it, it helped me create a a healthy, uh, it helped me reestablish what a healthy relationship looks like without having to, you know, dive in head first, you know, it let me control a lot of the situation in a way that was still, it was beneficial for me, beneficial for her. And it helped her, you know, figure out what, what was most important to her in the relationship and communicate that at the same time so we had a few conversations here and there that were heavy you know and they weren't nearly as fruitful as the follow-up conversations that happen in writing you know we would start something in person and then you'd go back you know go to our separate corners and then, you know, the follow up in writing was, you know, a, always a really succinct, succinct and, you know, detailed at the same time kind of closure for that conversation. You know, there was never anything left hanging because we were able to utilize our strengths in that regard. So now we have a, a general idea of. The way we are (laughs) i won't say it's i won't say it's perfect at all um i definitely miss the cues from time to time (laughs) Uh, and i you know i still feel bad for it but i can more effectively pick up what she's putting down he was he had another metaphor and yeah we're stronger for it yeah and two points on that
1: one you talked about the journaling the myers-briggs No matter what relationship you're in, even a great one, it's going to take work. A lot of people might get caught up in the misconception of, oh, relationships are all sunshine and roses. I'm going to jump into it and it's going to make my life infinitely better. People should go into a relationship knowing that it is something that requires a lot of work. The more work you're willing to put in it, the more fulfilling it will be. So only dive into a relationship if you are ready to make it a main priority in your life. If not, the quality of your relationship will lack and it can also make your life worse as opposed to better. So know that it will require work and what you're getting into. And then additionally, you and your wife were doing something very smart where you were playing to your strengths. You knew that you were better off together by doing this writing and journaling together, Versus maybe having to, right off the top of your head, uh, ramble on about something and not be able to be as succinct or concise with how you communicate. So each couple should know that each relationship is different and you need to learn how your relationship is, what's contextual to your relationship, what you guys should do as opposed to others. We talked about how advice is contextual early on and that applies to relationships too learn your situation, learn who you are as a couple, and then be able to play into that play to your strengths and try to work around your weaknesses.
0: I like that. And you know, it's not going to be perfect. Like, you know, it's comparatively speaking, I feel like this, you know, my life now is practically perfect, but I'm comparing it to what it used to be. And like I said, it was, it was was rough. Um, You know, at the the time it didn't seem as rough if it was, but I was definitely, you know, intentionally blind to what was happening. So in hindsight, you know, the way things are now, I, I don't, I don't feel like they could really get any better, you know, not because I can't make them better, but because there's no more better to get, you know what I mean? Like it's, I, I won't say it's perfect because we are both human and, you know, we make mistakes probably myself more than her, but again, (laughs) coming back to some of that, you know, self-deprecation, but you know, it's our life. Our life is good. You know, I, I wish I didn't have as many student loans as I do, but you know, if that's my only problem right now, like I feel like I'm, it's great. You know, I wake up every morning. I don't dread anything. I don't, you know, I'm not wishing I had more, well, no, I don't want to quite say that. Because yeah. sometimes there there are times that I wish I had stuff, but like I'm not wanting for a better life. I guess is probably the best way to put that. Like there are always things that I would like to have, but I would love to have a boat. You know, I go fishing. I would love to have a nice new bass boat, but I could survive without it. You know what I mean? It's not going to make my life substantially better. That's just a neat thing to have. You know, I'm not wanting for a healthy relationship or to get out of you know a monstrous pile of debt because my ex-wife you know ran up all the credit cards and has no plans on paying them because <laughs> you know she didn't want to keep her job so you know it's we we are doing well and you know being able to say that tied off the last you know the last bit of rope for you know my mind starting a family and you know once i was still i I was still terrified like there was no way to not be terrified but once i could convince myself that all of the pieces are in place for supporting a family i think that's a that is it is a distinction it's an important distinction to make because you know uh, several folks around me and friends who have kids and stuff like that. They're like, you can never be fully ready. I'm like, no, but let me tell you, you can definitely prepare the space and resources around you. Like you can, there are a lot of things you do. You can do to help get ready. Don't ever let anyone tell you that you can't like, at least do some of that. That's just total horseshit. (laughs) You know, I think to use a specific example, Don't have kids if you can't afford them you know like that's and some folks use that as a derogatory statement but i i believe it's there is some merit to it in that if you're bringing a kid into this world and you cannot you don't have the resources to raise it that is unfair to that child you know and those are the kinds of thoughts that i had like i don't want there to ever be a scenario where i cannot provide least to the best of my ability i there is never a scenario where i cannot provide something for that child that that child needs whatever i have to do to be able to check that box i feel like needs to happen first and so once that was done and you know we were in a comfortable place in our relationship and i didn't feel like things were going to go sideways after we had a kid then my you know emotional terror that it's never solvable that's the part they say you can never be fully ready you know i just kind of took that as it came and you know i think as <clears throat> as the uh, as the months passed when my wife was pregnant it never really fully sunk in like i knew she was mm-hmm. and i knew we were having a child but like it didn't quite hit you know what I mean? Like they were just, they just happened to be facts. They were just things. these are statements that are true. Mm-hmm. You know, like it, the the emotional connection to those things didn't happen. They, and I, I feel like I heard this from a lot of folks that it, the, the emotional part did not kick in until immediately when that child was born and I saw it for the first time. And then it all kind of just came at me at once. Like, holy shit, I have a child and there it is. You know what I mean? Like it all just kind of came exactly the same time and it was an overwhelming flurry of all all happy emotions, right? Like I, at, at no point was I like, oh my God, I don't know if I can take care of this. Like none of that was ever just remotely in my mind, right? All I could think about was that this is my child now. I have one, you know, and this, I am the happiest father in the world. Did some of that other stuff come later? You bet Once that (laughs) high wears off. Let me tell you, it gets tough, but I would not, you know, if it's, it's amusing because it's like, if I, if I go back to like my former self, like myself from 10 years ago and said, Hey, I know you are, you despise the idea of having children, but guess what? Guess what's going to happen in 2022. <laughs> I, I I mean, my past self probably wouldn't believe it at the time, but you know, like I said, when there were there were so many other things influencing that perspective that once all of that is gone, it's just like, yeah, I guess it's not so bad after all. And now that now that she's here, you know, it's definitely stressful having a kid for sure. 100 percent, but it's not unmanageable and i think having having a partner that is good at familial management i love these buzzwords man <laughs> I hope somebody's writing them down um really it really helps like she's she's a very good planner she's a very good uh observer and that that helps a lot with the day to day, you know, being compatible people raises a compatible child and almost in some way, you know, like it's, I think our, our daughter could be just about any kind of baby and we would have figured out a way to make it work. We are very glad that she is the way she is, but we would not have been repulsed if she was in more, you know, not fragile but finicky or emotional or overexcited or well you know whatever variations of babies exist right we we would have figured it out because we had the capability to do so and this brings up a
1: good point which is you're talking about having a partner who's very good with family life things like that a lot of people might not think about how when you're in a relationship with someone you're living a life together where you're going to have to tackle challenges together. You're going to have to pay bills. You're going to have to raise kids. A lot of people think, Oh, we're in love. This is great. Yes. That is. It's an amazing feeling and it, it can really help strengthen your relationship, but you do also live a life together where you're going to have shared goals like raising kids, things like that. And it's important to be able to recognize, is this a partner who I can work on goals together? Do we, plan and strategize well together can we cover each other's weaknesses or is this someone who i love but we can't effectively get things done together
0: you know if you're going to become a professional podcaster you got to learn to hold it
1: (laughs) honestly that that was my biggest concern with starting a podcast was i use the
0: bathroom a lot i don't know how this is going to work out (laughs) Um, yeah for those that have no idea what we're talking about we we took we took a quick break and i'm just (laughs) i'm giving i'm giving jake crap for needing to take a break because you know i'm just like all right we could you know maybe that's more of a a commentary about me you know i have beverages here sure too but like maybe i just drink less fluid i don't know i i always learn you know drink when you're thirsty you know and i'm just not thirsty (laughs) i guess i don't know (laughs) But yeah, no, you gotta, you gotta, gotta learn to hold it sometimes. You know? <laughs> no, especially I mean, if you want to have, you know, if you want to have a multi-hour podcast, like uh, a lot of the podcasts I listen to are two three hours long and you know, that's just kind of the norm. You just kind of go at it all at once. Oh, well, that's all right. Jake's working on being a pro. I'm sure.
1: I, I am. It's okay though. I got some diapers coming in the mail. So problem solved. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I feel like we're going in the wrong direction. <laughs> well speaking of diapers let's get back to kids <laughs>
0: so you I'm, want me to tell you how many diapers i've bought oh jesus um well so okay. uh, yeah go for so it so one of my things now being a dad who's also kind of a nerd is that like i'm trying to like i'm not trying to track every meticulous detail of our child's life but like one thing one thing i was trying to understand before she was born is that like what is the diaper expense like? And there's no good answer for that. Like no one's just bothered to try and figure it out. And so the first thought I had was, all right, I'm going to record every diaper purchase that we make (laughs) and how many those are. And you know, if I can't figure out the actual cost, at least I can figure out the quantity. Right. So I have in front of me here and I will include this in the show notes as well. Uh, I keep a a small list of various dad notes uh, so far. And, you know, one of the sections are statistics on diapers purchased. Um, Here we go. From newborn, we bought 265 newborn diapers, 450 size one diapers, 696 size two diapers. Do you notice they're starting to get larger per size? And thus far... 576 size 3 diapers. Those are diapers purchased, not diapers consumed, because we go to Costco and we buy the large quantities. But the one thing I've noticed in this trend is that as she grows, the the time between diaper sizes gets longer, because first number of weeks and months, she grew a lot. And then she starts slowing down. So, I imagine there are many thousands of diapers after this, but... somebody wants to do that math you can you know understand that there you will be buying a lot of diapers and i think that kind of comes back to my you know argument for the uh readiness of having a child you know i wanted to one of the things that came up whenever we would talk about it is ensuring that we can fit a child into our budget you know like what adding the extra cost of baby into our budget every month. What is that going to look like? And how do we make that work? Wasn't just going to do it, say YOLO and see what happens. So (laughs) I'm sure somebody out there would find that helpful. Note that our daughter is eight and a half months and we have consumed, what is that? A couple thousand. I don't know. Let's do this live. two six five and 450, and 696, and 576 thus far, 1,987. Look at that. That's just purchased so far, and she's eight and a half months. So do with that info what you will, but I thought that would be an interesting little tidbit to share
1: and related to that, on the topic of babies and finances, yeah. one online personality I follow online, his online name is Mr. Money Mustache, and he's, I've really, heard of him, yeah. Yeah, he's really big on finances, and he has a blog post about an argument for only having one kid relating to because of like financial reasons, oh, and yes. I know that you and I in our prep call talked a little bit about one kid versus two kids. And yep. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on having one kid versus two kid. And maybe the factors that are playing around in your mind with, if you should have a second kid or not.
0: So I heard a lot of argument for having two kids that was all centered around so they could entertain each other Do the do like, that's fine. But that, that didn't seem like a convincing enough argument by itself. Like, okay, sure. Like, pass off some of the entertainment entertainment of children to other children. Fine. When I grow up, I know when I grew up, when I grow up, I'm 33. I haven't grown up yet. <laughs> um, my, my younger brother was almost six years younger than me and we more or less grew up apart, <laughs> you know? So it's while I wasn't an only child, we, we did not go to the same schools ever because we were too far apart for that. We did not have the same interests. We were not at the same stages in our life. Like there was very little that we could relate to as siblings, like in the category of siblings, right? So like, even though my, you know, my parents had two kids, well, it didn't really help in the they will entertain each other category. So like there's, you know, if that's the route you're gonna take, you kind of have to put them close together. And that puts extra pressure both on you as a parent and your finances. Like it's, you know, we are, we are on track to ensure that our daughter does not have to pay for college, which is great. We could not do that for a second child. We don't have enough. There's just not enough extra cash for that. See my earlier discussion on, you know, ensuring that every opportunity is available for said child. I I would feel terrible if I could not provide equally for the second child. And maybe that's, that's all superficial. I'd find a way to do it, blah, blah, blah. If you you know really want to do it bad enough. Sure. Fine. But even all of that aside, you know, we are not necessarily young in the, on the spectrum of the parental age, like becoming a parent age range, right? You know, I'm 33. My wife is 35. We are tired millennials, right? We could have another kid. But we look at where we will be if that, you know, opportunity arises. And we think about, can we both individually and together mentally handle a second child? Like, I think a lot of the conversation that I I never really see from actual parents is, can we handle it ourselves? What kind of toll is that going to take on us? not necessarily we need to have a second child because society says we need to have a second child or some so and so says or grandparents says we need to have more grandbabies you know what i mean like there needs to be more conversation about how it impacts you as the parent like first and foremost your needs should come first in that conversation your how your kid grows up is not going to be impacted by there being a sibling it's going to be impacted by you as a parent i know plenty of people that were only children that turned out entirely fine i don't like the idea of using additional kids as an excuse in any way or doing it because somebody says you have to or because it's the norm or any of that it just it feels it feels gross and it feels like you're setting up this mythical second child, even the first one or third child or fourth child, you're setting them up for some kind of disadvantage. If you're only doing it because you'd feel like you have to, you know what I mean? Like it it might not reflect immediately, but you know, we're, we're kind of, we're all disgusting humans at our core. Like that's going to show up somewhere later in life. And some people really enjoy having large families, but the vibe I get from those is that that's intentional. Like they want that large family. They weren't told they need to have that large family or they didn't have the second kid to, because of the first kid or they didn't have the third kid and the four, you know what I mean? Like that was all a very intentional maneuver or there was some other influence, you know, be it religious or they just, you know, like whatever, there was some motivation for it. That wasn't, you know, from some outside stimuli. Does that make sense? Yeah. Making sure that you're consciously
1: deciding to have a kid because you love having multiple kids. You're doing it for you versus because of the thought of needing to do it for your child. A single child can still turn out very well. They don't necessarily need a sibling and being able to challenge society's assumptions with that and knowing when you're making your own decision versus when you're just doing what society's telling you to do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. To sum that up, I, in one sentence, I would say do what you feel is best. We have enough kids. (laughs) Like society has enough children. Like if you don't have kids, nothing bad is going to happen. I, I, I promise. Like, you know, your parents who are itching for grandchildren might be disappointed, but if they're going to take issue with that, that is in, that is a separate problem. You should not be catering to that. Like if you decide kids are not for me, that's okay. That's absolutely okay. Anyone that tells you that it's not okay is not okay, you know, and that should be dealt with. So yeah, definitely from a financial perspective, one kid is a lot easier to plan around. Um, especially, you know, like we've been lucky so far in that. Our daughter doesn't need much, you know, like generally speaking, you know, the various baby supplies, that's all to be expected, toys, diapers, food, blah, 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 right? You know, she doesn't have any conditions, she doesn't have any special needs, or any of that stuff that, you know, ends up costing, a, unfortunately, a lot of money, right? So we feel very lucky in that regard. Um, but because of that, you know, we we see we see how much more complicated things can get. And we want to be able to prepare for that. Cause like, we don't know what, what life is going to look like for her or for us, you know, in the future. But going back to that whole, that whole planning thing, I would like to at least have the resources for every possible outcome. I can't plan for it, but you know, I would be able to better handle it if I didn't have to worry about, you know, all of a sudden, you know, she's five years old and needs like a kidney transplant or something like whack like that, you know, like that would be incredibly unfortunate if she did. But if she did need that, we can handle it. We're set. We're ready to go, you know? And I don't know. I don't know how well we'd be able to do that if we had two children. And maybe some of that is, you know, me internal, internalizing some of it. I think we've, we've come to the conclusion that, you know, The resource planning and gathering concept is a pretty strong one for me. So perhaps I am skewing it a bit in that regard, but I definitely do not disagree that the financial burden of two children is substantial. And I just, I think about, I don't want to get too depressing, but I think about families who exist and children born into this world who don't have anything, resources, whatever, however you wanted to measure that, right? And I feel bad because, like, I you know, I I didn't grow up in a family that had money. We were, we were. I didn't realize until I'm an adult how poor we actually were. My parents did a good job of hiding it. Like I think about that, and it just it it makes me it terrifies me, and it makes me sad, and just knowing that, like. practically any day, you know, I could lose my home thinking like as a kid, you know, I could lose the place that I sleep. And like that, putting that kind of potential on a child, especially one that doesn't understand any of that, like that just, uh, I don't don't even know how to describe like those kinds of feelings, you know, like that should never be I promise we'll come out of this dark hole here in a second, but like that's those kinds of things should never, you should never get anywhere close to that. And like, you know, coming back to what I said, like if you, if you can't financially afford children, like it's okay to not have them. You know what I mean? (laughs) No.
1: And it's a good point where a lot of people might just have a kid because they think this is the next step in the progression. Society tells me they say I should get married. They say I should have a kid, consciously think before having a kid are you doing it because you want to and not only that do you have the means to take care of this kid and provide it the life that would do it well are you going to be able to give it all the opportunities it needs and take care of it or are you doing this and then the child is the one who's going to have to suffer because you're just kind of hopping into it prematurely without having the resources
0: Mm -hmm. yeah and, you know, I the the reference you're making to Mr. Money Mustache and the Single Kid, you know, I found that article and I'll put that in the list of links here. But, nice. you know, one of the things that he focused on in that article is what I mentioned about kids your own age, you know, like it's even, even just a couple years apart, you know, like friends that I had growing up, you know, elementary and middle school and stuff like that, especially who had siblings that were even a year, two years apart like at that age those small age gaps are huge like so sure they may only be 2 years apart but they might as well be a decade apart at that age at those age ranges you know what i mean like they they might as well just not even exist to each other outside of the home and that i think kind of takes away a lot of the argument for they can entertain each other it's like well maybe at home sure and on the weekends but at school they are foreign to each other. They are entirely different countries to each other. Like that's, I, I don't think, I don't think people think about that a lot. And, you know, especially with how gnarly this social circles are at those ages, like, oof, I would not, I would not want to be a kid in middle school again. <laughs> Let's put it no, that
1: way. Definitely not. <laughs> and on the topic of factors that people don't think about with having kids, we talked about, having kids at the age you are now, what age you would have kids if you were to have a second one and how you'd be older and factoring that in. I think that there are pros and cons to having kids young, having kids old. I know that some people argue, oh, I want to have kids young because then I'll be younger and can play with them as they get older. Other people want to have kids older because then they can spend more time with their spouse and have a life together before they have kids. I'm wondering your thoughts on the pros and cons to having kids younger versus older and what you might prefer to lean towards, and if that's something you can even fully plan for.
0: I think you can you can biologically plan for it through various means, i.e. birth control, right? <laughs> yep. Um mentally, it's I believe it's going to vary greatly from individual to individual. I don't believe that there's mentally the best time to have kids see mm-hmm. earlier, you know, my earlier perspective. Uh, physically, uh, you know, I know I know a lot of dads who are approaching 40 who are in way better shape than I am, you know. And I know a lot of dads who are not, that are not, you know. That's, I think a lot of it is going to it's going to be up to the individual, I think a lot more than it, than it seems like some folks can, you know, I know some folks who had kids at their, you know, early mid twenties and they're doing just fine. You know, at least, at least on the outset, it's entirely possible that they're struggling and losing their minds on the inside, but that's not what they show. So throw that asterisk out there too, of course you know, if you have a friend that has four or five kids, like they may appear to be doing just fine, but are they really like, would you ever actually know if they weren't, you know, and if you would, great, you can use them as an actual example of maybe it's not so bad, but ultimately, you know, what somebody else does should never dictate what you do, right? Like if, you know, if I was 23 and all of my other friends were getting married and having kids immediately and all that stuff like good for them I guess like I'm not I'm not going to jump onto that bandwagon and nobody nobody should feel pressured to do so on the flip side you know as you get older recognize that as you get older your body is going to change (laughs) for lack of better words (laughs) the puberty talk it's it is the right it is puberty plus right It's what comes after that you know we had a good run but now we're forty five and things are starting to not be great and you know I, I'm I'm keeping it vague because it, it it varies differently from person to person but I think everybody understands what I'm getting at right and so that's something that you have to take into account too you know it, we. We as a society are a lot better at what we call geriatric pregnancies, which sounds like sixty-five-year-olds giving birth, but it's really not. It's anyone over the age of thirty-five, I believe. If a woman is over the age of thirty-five, it's considered a geriatric pregnancy. Fun fact. You know, we learned that because my, you know, my wife was approaching thirty-five when our daughter was born. So like that was that was a topic that almost had to come up. Mm-hmm. you know, there are entirely different sets of processes for, you know, for how the hospital and the doctors treat a pregnancy when you magically turn 35. It's it's so silly. But there's a reason for that. Like there's, you know, there, there have been enough issues over time where it's like, okay, now we have to treat these differently. And, you know, with more care, quite literally more with more care. And, you know, I think about that, like, if we had another child, what would that look like as far as the the pressure and medical burden on my wife to have a second child? Like, if I really, really wanted to have one and she didn't, like, am I really going to be that selfish and insist on one, knowing the potential? Like, maybe it's entirely fine. It could very well be entirely fine. My mom had my younger brother when she was 37. Turned out fine. But it, I think even through all of that, where it could be fine at 40, you could, you know, you could be one of those lucky folks that is able to have kids at 45, great, cool, awesome. But the only way that should be happening is if it's, that was a decision you made specifically, and you are entirely fine with the potential complexities that come with that. Like nobody should be pressuring you to have kids older, you know, obviously. There are like socioeconomical uh, factors to that too, you know, us millennials, especially I don't know how far into the millennial range you might be, but you know, it's it's a known fact like statistically we are having kids older for a number of reasons, you know, and a lot of it is you know finance re, finance related or folks want to spend more time on growing themselves like the 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 idea that, you get married and start a family and become a homemaker is a lot more dried out than it used to be, you know, and that's not where a lot of folks are putting their heads anymore. That's all fine too. You know, regardless of what, what society says, what your friends say or doing whatever, like it's, it's your choice. If you want to have a kid at 20, I mean, I sure as shit hope you're ready, but (laughs) 20 might not be a good example. Let me, I'll say 25, 25 might be a little bit better. Please don't have kids at 20. I'm just going to, I'm just going to say that. Don't just don't. I, I, I didn't know a single individual at 20 that was like mentally sane enough for that. Um, you know, 25, if that's when you want to start a family, if you got all your ducks in a row, as I've been harking on for the last 45 minutes, great. Go for it. You know, if you want to wait until you're 35, also great. Go for it. If you want to wait until never, also great go for it but let it be your decision and not anybody else's that's my opinion on that i love that
1: man i think that that's a good wrap (laughs) on the kids stuff for now i feel like you're a natural when it comes to wording some of these things i think it comes from the the podcasting experience
0: and that's the next i had a lot i had a lot of time to think about it too which really helped me narrow it hone in on You know, like if somebody, if this ever comes up in real life, you know, all of the times that I have conversations about it, you know, I'll be ready, right? Like I spent a lot of time thinking about this. If you couldn't tell already.
1: No, the, these are important questions to think about where it really helps to let the information settle and then you can Mm -hmm. form more of a critical opinion versus just acting very rashly there. It's interesting on that. A lot of people will overemphasize small decisions that don't really matter and they don't put enough time and energy into the bigger decisions with life most of us are going to be fine and there are just a few very big decisions that are going to have a crazy amount of impact things like who who you're going to marry or having kids or maybe where you live in the world and like opening mortgages these kind of things have massive impact Versus overanalyzing, oh, should I buy this new jacket or not? So people should really emphasize the big decisions and mm-hmm. not waste as much time and energy on the small ones.
0: Yeah, it, it did definitely help <clears throat> when comparing those two categories together. Like it, later in life, when I had the disposable income where I could just stop thinking about, should I buy X? Whatever. Sure. Fine. You know, like it, that, I think kind of helped make that easier to distinct those, those keep those two things distinct and, and separate from each other. You know, we, we spent a lot of time, like, like you said, mortgage, like we spent a lot of time looking for mortgage lenders, right? Cause that's a huge thing, right? We, we spent a lot of time figuring out when we were going to time for us, figuring out when we were going to time the housing market collapse that never came <laughs> until now. It's a little late for that, but. But you know, we we spent a lot of time planning that out, and because of that, we have a two and a half in two and a half percent interest mortgage. You know what I mean? Like we we nailed that because we uh, we planned and got it at the right time. And I don't necessarily care if you know the next car that I lease has the absolute best interest rate or, you know, money factor or like the best monthly payment or whatever, like, you know, like stuff like that doesn't necessarily matter as much because I've gotten to the point where I can just absorb all of that, but it took a hell of a lot of effort to get there. A hell of a lot of time. And it helps that I have a, a well-paying career too, you know,
1: a hundred percent. And the next topic I want to hop into is podcasting. I know Mm -hmm. that you have a good amount of podcasting experience You've done podcasts with our buddy, Dylan, who we're going to try to get him to hop back in and start podcasting with you again. I talked to him. <sighs>
0: yeah, and it, it, I keep, <laughs> I keep bringing it up, but this guy, he, I don't know, they're working on some pretty cool things over there. So I can't really harass him too much. Like I, I know he's, he's a busy guy, like trying to get him scheduled for the shows and stuff was already difficult. That's when he really wanted to do it. So
1: oh yeah well i i say yeah but i one i say don't give up i think if you hound him enough he'll do it but i wanted to get your advice on podcasting any general tips you have i know that we talked about uh show notes we talked about having chapters in your podcasts any lessons learned i'm trying to just learn as much as i can so i'd love to hear your perspective and experience
0: when So the thing about the podcast that we did that I appreciated the most was actually making the podcast more than like the content and like getting it out there and stuff like that. But that that's probably more unique to me than I think the average individual. You know, I I know a lot of folks do podcasts as a form of marketing, you know, getting their name out there bringing in traffic for whatever, whatever thing it is, right? Like I, you, you had a motivation for starting the show that wasn't just necessarily, I want to make a podcast for funsies. You know what I mean? Like you had a purpose, right? I jumped onto the podcast train as a solution to Dylan's problem is that, you know, producing the show, right? I was, I was more the producer than anything else. um, And that was entirely fine. Like that was, that was the role I was most comfortable in. And you know, if anything I could help, Steer Dylan in directions, but if you've heard any of the episodes, that guy will talk, talk. (laughs) Dylan, I love you, dude. But oh my god, I you know, it also made it easy to edit, right? Because he's very good at you know conveying his thoughts with words. So I didn't. In the first few episodes, I spent a lot of time editing, and I realized I didn't actually really have to. Like, there's, I feel like there are two different classes of podcasts. There are the topical kind of off the cuff type stuff, like what you and I are doing. And then there's like the highly produced show that like you would hear, you know, like serial, for example, is like the, probably the biggest exam, biggest name that everyone's familiar with. Right. Or this American life. Like it's more of like a radio program of your, than it is a, a podcast, right? It is, it is more of a, a show it's more of a show than a podcast. Now that doesn't make any sense, but like it's, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's a, a packaged produced production than it is a podcast. And, you know, I always wanted to steer away from that because I personally, I don't like those types of podcasts. I, you know, I think the most heavily produced show I ever listened to was the podcast, Kind of true crime esque miniseries um, about uh, the the what was it the cult uh, Nexium? Do you remember? Did you ever hear about that? No. What what is Nexium? Uh, Nexium was. I, I don't I don't want to spoil it too much. Too much but <laughs> I, I could. The it. end of that story <laughs> is that the 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 leader is in jail or something of that sort. Um, it, it it involved a lot of. Like that weird self-help, be voodooy, y bullshit that you you often hear terrible stories about. Um, but he would lure women in, and yeah, it was basically a cult. I'll just put it that way. I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. It was it was a good show, and it I listened to the first season, um, and I think I think there was a second season. I don't know. I listened to just about everything that there was there for that show, and it was it was a lot, but it was really good. Granted, it's the only one I've ever listened to, but I think I was gravitated towards it because it wasn't super heavily produced. You know, it's, I steer away from like the NPR type stuff or like, you know, like I said, this American Life type stuff. Like I I tried to get into some of those and it was, it just felt like I was listening to extensions of the radio programs, you know, and that's not really, I rarely listen to the radio. So yeah, as far as, tips go i'm surprised i remembered one, that one uh, one question
1: it. on that so yeah. on on the topic of podcast editing so what kind of editing do you do do you still do or did you do did you do light editing did you not really edit anything out i have uh two questions on editing and then we could jump into general
0: podcasting stuff some real-time follow-up the show was called escaping nexium and mm-hmm. i uh, will it was a podcast done by the cbc Um, which fantastic. I'll put a link in the show notes anyways, editing. Uh, So the first handful of episodes, I think I was about to touch on this and then I got sidetracked, but uh, the first handful of episodes, I did a lot, a lot of editing, a lot of splicing together words and moving ums and us and all this other stuff. And I spent, you know, for an hour show, I probably spent another two or three hours on it. That didn't feel sustainable for what we were trying to produce. Like it I was putting in high quality production type effort into a casual show Mm -hmm. and it didn't it didn't feel right like it didn't feel like it was adding any value to the content so after a handful of episodes i uh i more or less just stopped doing most of that like i would i would do maybe a handful of things i would level out the sound So it all not just was like the same volume, but the same loudness. Right. So like, if I shouted at you, you could tell I'm shouting, but it's not like going to blow your ears out. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. The the distinction there. Um, Also, if like, you know, I ended up whispering could bring some of that up so you can, you can still tell I'm whispering and it doesn't sound funny, but you're also not like having to turn the volume up to, you know, account for the whispers and stuff like that. Right. So. That was a big thing that I did, just kind of across the whole program. And then I would go through and look for any long pauses. So, you know, one thing I picked up in in Dylan's in Dylan's speech, kind of like presentation speech, he would he would say a thing, and then he would say another thought. Like there would be like hit that his transitionary period would have pauses, long pauses, but like, they weren't incoherent thoughts either. So like I could, you know, scroll through the timeline and see those, shorten them up a little bit. So it sounded like he was, it was more natural speech. And that was probably the, the most editing I did after the first few episodes was just cleaning up stuff like that. And then as we would transition between individuals that were talking, you know, kind of cut out any kind of overlap or if you know restated a question right you obviously cut out the first attempt at it but we didn't really focus too heavily on making sure everything was all neat and tidy and packaged and perfect like that was never it you know like i said because it doesn't provide it didn't feel like it provided a lot of extra value we just it wasn't it wasn't something we did you know so like thinking about you and i how we're talking you know, some of my longer pauses, I would probably cut those, you know, trim those up a bit, but I wouldn't like, you know, I think one thing I had mentioned in our in our prep call was that like the show is the show, right? Did I did I say that out loud or was I just thinking it? Like that's the thing I think, but I don't know if I actually said that. I I would love to hear
1: you elaborate
0: on that point. So like, yeah, so like in my head, like the show is the show, right? Like I think, you know, I and maybe this is me projecting what I appreciate in podcasts onto other people and their shows. But like, I I feel like it is the most genuine and the most interesting when it is the most just normal and like real. I don't want to say raw because, you know, obviously there's still going to be some editing that goes into it, but like the format of the show that represents what actually happened and represents the actual natural conversation that took place between the individuals. I feel like, is the most appropriate for that medium um again with the asterisk that i biased towards you know topical off the cup type programming not heavily produced stuff obviously your mileage may vary you might be interested in totally the other way around it's fine like i said i listen to three hour podcasts on the regular and i don't get bored because i feel like i'm just listening to a few people that i find interesting just talk about stuff makes sense oh yeah yeah 100 percent. the show is the show so yeah like it's <clears throat> you know i didn't when we got into when we started this program now nearly uh two hours and 24 minutes ago at least by my <laughs> clock anyways <laughs> you know we kind of just we didn't really like ramp up anything there wasn't like a hey jonathan why don't you introduce you tell the world about yourself or something like that we just kind of just jumped into it you know like the show is the show like this is this is the program you know we're not You know, we're not sitting down for an interview with some fancy exec and have to, you know, tweak everything and have it just right and, you know, say exactly the correct words. Like I would never, you know, I, it's, it's obvious that there are times when, you know, I have better words that I I say to convey what I'm thinking. And I more or less as a guest, just kind of just trust you to figure that out. Like that's kind (laughs) of your job, not mine. Right. So I'm just going to say what I'm going to say. I'm not going to say, Hey, can I do that over? I'm just going to do it over, (laughs) you know, and you make the show because the show is the show. And obviously I know that sounds super vague and it doesn't like actually explain it, but I think it also does, you know, the show is the show. Like this is, it's two people hanging out talking about something that's interesting rather than yet another radio program in downloadable form.
1: No, I'm I'm with you, man. <clears throat> All about authenticity, enthusiasm, things like that. I'd say let's hop to the back to the, the general advice. I'd love to hear yeah. <clears throat> any general advice you have on podcasting. <laughs> we'll go ahead and that close that
0: parentheses now and come back to the main topic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So advice. Hmm. I honestly, I didn't think about it. Think about that specifically too much. I feel like why somebody wants to start a podcast is so is so incredibly varied. Look, let me let me ask you a question. Maybe this will help steer my thought here a little bit. Why did you want to start this podcast?
1: Yeah. So, and feel free to ask any questions you want. I want. I know. I
0: realize I haven't asked
1: you a single question this <laughs> entire show. <laughs> Enough about me. Let's talk about you. So, yeah, right. So I, I started this podcast just as a way to have amazing, fun, engaging conversations with people. I love being able to learn about people, learn about how they think, why they do what they do, just because one, I'm just genuinely curious and interested in other people. I love people in general. And also, it's a great way to teach me new things. And these type of conversations just off the cuff also are one of the most fulfilling things for me, make me feel the most alive. So less about monetization, marketing, and more just about how many fun, interesting conversations can I have with people?
0: So I will, I will re ask that question again in a slightly different way. And I think you'll understand why, why, why start this podcast in comparison to something like just starting a blog or, you know, doing just exclusively a YouTube channel or something where you have video interviews, like why, why the podcast format specifically?
1: Mm, So that's a good question. Uh, I like that you dug deeper. I will include video. But to highlight the main point, I was initially thinking just podcasting. And that was because I wanted to be able to focus more on just having fun, engaging conversations with people and less about doing over the top editing. Like a lot of people would tell me, oh, Jake, if you want to make this thing big, you have to put a lot of content on TikTok, Instagram, you have to do this. But for me, it's more about the conversations, enjoying them and just focusing my time and efforts on that versus focusing on over the top production and trying to make things
0: appealing in that way. And so that's, that's the question, see, I'm getting somewhere with that. That's, that's the kind of question I would ask if somebody said I wanted to start a podcast, like what, what about a podcast specifically? is interesting to you because it is it is a media where it's it's super super easy to to start with all you know the plethora of tools out there right we're using riverside but there you know there's probably a half dozen or more others that, that do similar things that help you create you know podcast content without having to have you know editing suites or you know understanding how to edit audio and logic or stuff like that right like that's those tools have made it incredibly easy to start a show, but the, the one thing I always come back to is why do you want to start the show specifically? Like that should be something you should be able to answer because if you can't, that will come through in the presentation of the content. You have to, you have to like the idea of that style of content and be able to convey your message in that style of content. So as somebody who, is not great at using their words to explain things. I've still gotten good at being able to tie off my rambles. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like that's, that's good enough. And I, you know, I know that that's my weakness and I've been able to work around that and I can solve that in editing if I have to, but I have to be aware that that was even an issue to begin with and know how to handle that. And, what that actually looks like and how do I keep myself on track? You know, like I said, I've got the book, right? I've got the outline that helps me keep on track. You know, like you got to think about all of this stuff when you're doing it in podcast mode. Otherwise you're just randomly talking and the people who are listening are going to lose, they're going to lose the thread very quickly and then they're going to switch it off. So that was,
1: go ahead. Oh no, I was going to say, I think that that's a good point where working backwards from why you're starting the podcast, what are you trying to do? And then making sure that your message ties up with that as well as that you're choosing the right medium for the kind of content you want to present that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Cause you know, there, there are a lot of folks that Excel at video, right. YouTube channels coming out of ears. Right. And there are Many of them that are stellar, exquisite stuff, but like w- what they're sharing with you might not actually work well in podcast form, in audio only form, or audio plus casual video. Right? I personally believe podcasts are audio only, but that is I under I, I respect that some folks like to include video as well, which is okay. I will not uh, will not tear into you for that one. I'll let you have that one, <laughs> um, but I think that also. Comes from the fact that, like, I got started listening to podcasts like in the mid two thousands when podcasts were quite literally just, you know, people talking. You downloaded to your iPod quite literally. Like, that's where the whole concept of a podcast started. Was the iPod right? So my perspective on podcasts are a little bit more traditional, but I think at the same time, I'm probably not in the minority. I, I recognize that. You know, there's an entire audience out there that likes the visual, the audiovisual medium and having it in multiple formats is helpful, right? Some folks that have podcasts that also show up on their YouTube channels. Shout out to my Amazon guy, uh, Steve, who, uh, Stephen, Stephen Pope great dude. Uh, He was on uh, an episode of welcome to growth. And I believe I was on one of his shows at one point too, boy, 2020 was really a blur. Um, You know, he does, he does the, the, the multiple format, but he also does not spend a ton of time on post-production and editing, right? Like it's the, the, the format is totally fine. I, but you know, the, the, the meat and the substance is in the audio is in the spoken word. And To bring all of that back around, understanding why podcast and what benefit could be had from the podcast medium specifically, I think is step zero and step 0.5 to making the podcast happen. Once you've got that figured out, the actual content, style of show, if you want to have guests or just have hosts on every week and it's just all topical news related stuff you can figure all of that out later that all of that stuff will just fall in line based on your desires and needs. You know, in the early episodes of welcome to growth, I spent the effort on like intro music and all that stuff. You'll hear it in probably the first four ish episodes. Uh, and then from there on out, I cut that out and then just did a quick music hit and, had no intro whatsoever. Like we just went right into it. Like I said, the show is the show, right? We just went straight into it. You know, the moment, the moment Dylan showed up, was the moment I hit record and that was it. You know, we're, we're off to the races at that point. And I feel like it helped create a more natural program. You know, there wasn't the, when we had guests, there's obviously some level of, you know, structure and, you know, like we don't know you, you don't know us type of thing, you know, like having, having different individuals on every week, you kind of have to figure out ways to kind of poke them into opening up. You know what I mean? Like some, some folks are better at just kind of going off the cuff and ad-libbing than others. Um, Those who are not as good were generally there mostly to promote whatever thing they had. Um, It's fine. You know, teach their own. It's, I I won't say any style of content is better than the other, but, you know, do, do whichever style feels most comfortable to you, or it's going to feel forced, whatever style that is. So it, to me, it appears you like the more kind of interview style. You know, you, you like to, you're, you're here in this, in this program to learn from the person that you're talking to right you're kind of just letting me just say my words and we're you know there isn't a lot of like interview questions you know like tell me a time when you had to struggle with this you know what i mean like just like the candid the canned stuff right um i think that's great that's you know i all i didn't really have anything to say besides just that observation um Does that all make sense? I kind of just let that one die off there in the end. That was great. I I have two specific
1: questions and then I
0: want to hop to the the wrap-up
1: questions as well. There's a lot more I want to cover, but we'll have to save that stuff for round two, talking more about candle business, you moving a lot of things like that. The last podcasting questions I want to ask is, uh, you mentioned in our prep call um, chapters as well as show Mm -hmm. notes. I wanted Mm -hmm. to see if you could give any advice on like how to write good show notes, including chapters, things to help with podcasts like this, where we're doing long form and jump around. So that way it's easier for people to kind of hop to where they want to go.
0: Yeah. I like the idea of show notes because it helps people follow along with what you're talking about. So, you know, we've brought up a handful of things today, or i Frankly, I, I've brought up a lot of, you know, a handful of things today just I'll, from left. Like if you looked at the entire list, you were like, wow, they covered a lot of stuff, th- a lot of stuff. Right. But imagine you're listening to this program that's now, you know, two and a half hours <laughs> and you're like, they talked about that one thing. You know, they talked about the love languages back in, you know, one hour and 20 minutes or whatever, or whatever that was like, where was that? Right. The show notes help aggregate all of the stuff that was discussed that might be of interest to people listening. They want to kind of learn more and kind of follow up with that on their own time. The chapters, the chapter markers help you jump back to that or jump forward over something you're not interested in. If you want to go back and listen to it. Right. So program like this, that is two and a half hours long chapters, I I certainly hope you can add chapters to this show (laughs) just because we spent a lot of time talking about a lot of things and being able to break up this long audio file into chunks and letting folks potentially jump around or go back to something. Maybe they want to go straight to the conversation that we had about kids because that's most important to them. They, They don't have to try and figure out where in the episode that is. They can just go straight to it. Make sense? Yeah, that, that makes
1: sense. I'm definitely going to add those to these podcasts as well as future ones and related to us jumping around to a lot of stuff and hitting about like the two and a half hour mark, wanted to hop into some of the wrap up questions for now. The first one that comes to mind is, is what does success mean to you and why? I think that a lot of us have different definitions of success. For someone who might be traveling the world, going to a lot of countries, someone who might be doing something related to charity, and I think it helps to learn about different people's versions of what success is for them.
0: You know, my my first reaction to that question is, you know, the way, the way you've defined success through your examples, which, you know, I, I will preface this with, There is no wrong answer to this question and there is no wrong way to define success. But the way I look at how success was defined in this context makes it sound to me like there is some finish line Mm -hmm. and I don't believe that such a thing exists. You know, um, I think success, you will have many successes in your life. I think success will come many times. And so I don't believe that like there is one uber success, right? Like, you know, so for some folks, they could say, all right, I've, I've been able to travel the world, you know, and that that is success for me. I would argue that is a success. You've checked off your bucket list. That is a success. But there are still other components of your life that are still in flight. Once those once those have matured, those are also individual successes. So what does success look like to me? I think it, it heavily depends. I'm going to give you a non-answer and I'm going to try to answer it. It it depends on which part of my life you're talking about. You know, like if we're talking about my family, I feel like having a family, having a cohesive family, that is success for me in the family category. You know, as far as finances go, not having to worry about debt, that is a success having being able to build wealth for our future that is success success, right like success for me is highly highly dependent on the topic you know i i cannot say like what like an overall success looks like because I, i i feel like all right i've checked the financial success box i've checked the familial success box but then there's going to be another thing. And then there's going to be another thing. And then there's going to be another thing. I think if I had to try and define it, success, uh, overall, overarching success is not having any major regrets when I die. <laughs> you know, to be a little morbid, right? Just because there are so many stages of my life. I can't, I can't just put a finish line on it because then there's going to be something afterwards that, you know, I'm going to want to try and succeed at in some fashion. And then we just start the whole thing all over again.
1: I'm, I'm with you, man. I, I view life in a very similar way. And you, from our conversations seem like a very happy person. And I think a lot of it is because of the way you view success, where viewing success in life as more of a process where goals are maybe a North star that you work towards, uh, as opposed to, something you hit and you're finally happy. So being able to just continuously grow in the areas that are important to you without tying your happiness to achieving certain results, as well as you mentioned how you'll hit one goal and then another one pops up. Life's going to continuously hand you new things you want to achieve. That's part of being human and making sure not to feel the need to achieve those before you let yourself be content with what you have. Because there will always be a next thing and that's a recipe for unhappiness.
0: Agree one hundred percent. Though at the same time, I would also argue that, you know what is the what is oh, there's a there's a turn of phrase regarding uh, the devil's hands are idle or something like that, or I don't oh, know, yeah, I, yeah. You know what uh, I'm thinking of. I'll, yeah, I'll yeah. probably remember after we're done, but you know, like taking that into kind of context of what we're talking about here, like complacency is also, I don't know, it's, it's a risky, it's a risky maneuver to be complacent because it's, it's a very short walk to regret you might not get there. Like you might not actually regret the complacency. Some people don't, some people are entirely fine with, you know, quote, living an average life. Like there's, there's no, there's no reason that literally everybody everywhere should be above average. Like it's, it sounds great. Everybody should strive to be their best self, but sometimes their best self is just average, you know, like that's, I feel like that's okay too. You know, not everyone's going to be a small business owner, stuff like that. So I just wanted to throw that little, you know, caveat or yet another asterisk or, you know, some kind of alternate perspective on that. I think, you know, it's, it's easy for folks to feel like I haven't, you know, I don't know what my successes are. Therefore I haven't succeeded. Well, maybe you have, but you're looking too large or you're thinking about it in the wrong context. Like, you know, I have a degree, but I have, you know, I'm not an expert in my field. It's like, well, getting the degree is a success. You know, being able to move through the collegiate system sometimes is a rather large success. You know, it's not not always easy for some folks, you know, and the rest of it, it's going to take time. As you progress through that, you will, you know, you will succeed as an entry-level individual, and then you'll move up the ranks and you will succeed at that. And then you'll succeed at the next thing. And the next thing, like those are all successes. And I feel like they should be looked at both collectively and individually, because if you're not looking at those individually on their own, it's easy to lose track of all of the actual accomplishments you've had in life.
1: Yeah, it's it's important to keep progressing, keep growing, not getting too comfortable and resisting growth and fulfillment. And then also not undermining your own successes where success is a continuous process. You can get to those major achievements, but you have to hit the smaller ones along the way. So recognize the wins and keep going. I think that that's a great point to wrap up on. And what I'd like to say is, is there anything else you'd like to leave the audience with either random thoughts or advice? And then also anything or any place where people can find you, uh, to, if you want to shout out your Twitter, your blog or, or remain anonymous. So <laughs> completely up to you. I
0: mean, you know, let's no, one, no one's anonymous on the internet, <laughs> put it that way. It, it's fine. Um, yeah, I think through all the things that we've discussed today, like a lot of it centered around the internal, mental struggles slash conflict that, you know, I experienced with all of these things. Right. And I feel like by taking, taking the understanding that I have these mental weaknesses in in all of these projects and aspects of life, taking that seriously and, and knowing what that looks like, how it impacts my day to day and, you know, new projects I take on my family, my job, et cetera. Uh, Just being aware was incredibly helpful in all of those aspects. Like not, not even, not even trying to fix it, just knowing where my weaknesses are and, and knowing like, you know, going back to the, you know, the, the coffee sample pack project. Right. And, and knowing, you know, where my head was at and recognizing that I took the easy path with something else and knowing that I'm capable of that and knowing that that's going to happen and recognizing I'm going to have to tie this off afterwards. You know what I mean? Like seeing that, seeing that play out time and again has made me super familiar with it. And I don't have a good solution for fixing it, but knowing that it's there, I think has been incredibly helpful uh, everywhere in life and, I don't know. I'm not super good with just the generic life advice. Uh, just understand if I, let me, if I was to try and tie that up a little bit more succinctly here, let me take a swing at this. Knowing your weaknesses is more valuable than fixing them. I would say In one sense.
1: That's awesome, man. <laughs> hey, that, that's a great wrap up there. Um, any place you'd like to, Oh wait, jump in. You got no,
0: no. Any place you'd like to come find me on the internet. Yeah. I mean, again, I'll I'll, I'll share all the links with you here, but uh, you can find me on Twitter where I shit post. Mostly you can (laughs) find a lot of tweets of value there on Twitter at underscore J O H L Y M. You can find me on my personal blog that I rarely update, but sometimes do Jonathan.org spelled with, two H's you can also find me at sellerjournal.com where I mentioned the retail arbitrage brand database exists there that blog is more catered towards e-commerce slash business type topics if you're curious you can also find me at seaplanecoffee.com as we mentioned the coffee business if you want to go buy some coffee from me great under no obligation to do so but I would not say no (laughs) <laughs> and if you wanted to buy some candles we didn't really touch on that maybe we'll touch on another day uh, cascadehandcrafts.com you can that'll take you to my etsy shop if you want to get something that smells really neat i think that's all of my places you don't really want to hang out with me on facebook i don't spend time <laughs> there uh linkedin i i don't see any value in linkedin professionally nothing nothing we've talked about here ever makes it to linkedin i don't really care about linkedin sorry guys I'm not going to not going to plug that. I mean, you can find me there. I don't care. You know, like my whole career history is practically there, but whatever. fine. That's that. Awesome.
1: Thanks, man. This was a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to getting this one up and uh, you're going to be working
0: on this one for a bit.
1: uh, Oh yeah. It'll, it'll be good practice. (laughs) Is this your, is this your
0: longest show?
1: Uh, this is the longest. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, it's good. It's good. Hey, show notes are going to come in handy. All right. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I hope you enjoyed this episode and got some value from it. If you want to hear more content on decision-making, thriving in uncertainty, eliminating ambiguity, and regret minimization, as well as other similar topics, feel free to check out my YouTube channel and my website, letsgetreckless.com, and definitely reach out and let me know what you thought about this episode. Improving the show is a continuous process and your feedback helps me make this better over time and focus more on the content that's most helpful for you. Have a great day and I'll see you in the next episode.